join us in the hot seat today as we talk about our early multiplayer experiences this week on Square Waves FM. Hello and welcome everyone to episode 6 of Square Waves FM podcast. Um, we are super glad to have you here, as always, as always. And uh, uh, my name is Brian, and uh, with me is... This is Mole Man. Good Mole Man to you. <laughs> Mole Man in the morning. <laughs> Hi everybody, it's Chris. I'm really excited to be back this week. Yeah, hey guys. Good, uh, good to hear from you too, Chris. Um, how, you uh, had a good week, I hope. Yeah, pretty good. Um, apparently, coming down with some sort of weird cold. Uh, I, I got like super dizzy last night and almost passed out in my kitchen. But as of this morning, I'm just losing my voice a little bit. But otherwise, I'm feeling just peachy keen. Oh, good. What more wholesome how activity for losing your voice than podcasting? That's a wise choice. <laughs> uh, I'm doing better than that, thank goodness. Um. My week was uh, pretty good. Lots of hard work, lots of unreasonable deadlines that I somehow squeaked through. Um, oh no! Eh, it's cool. And uh, what else? I don't know. Oh, I heard that I'm gonna. I've, I've been accepted to give a one-hour tutorial at some little faculty uh, conference that we're having in a couple of weeks. So that'll be fun. I've done a few of these oh, already. Oh, cool. Is it uh, computer-related tutorial stuff? Yeah, it's a it's an event called Teaching with Technology, where the faculty are encouraged to present to each other. To um, I work at a college, by the way, so yeah, where faculty are encouraged to talk to each other right. about their experiences using technology in their classrooms to engage with students or to facilitate learning. And so uh, gotcha. they so, also so is it like. Is it like two hours of everyone complaining about how much they hate Blackboard or Moodle? Uh, oh, it's a whole day of that. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, it's a it's a it's a most most of the day is one professor telling everyone how much that stuff sucks, and then a, a lunch break where we all tell each other how much we agree. Or I say we, but <laughs> I myself like a am conference not. I want to be a part of. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an easy one to agree on, I think. So I'm not faculty; I just work in the IT departments, but uh, they also encourage the support staff to speak with the faculty about this stuff, too. So I'm going to teach them about the Microsoft OneDrive online cloud storage thing. Fun oh, stuff. cool. Yeah, 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 that'll be a good time. Otherwise, I've had a, a week full of uh, gaming and sloth and all the other good stuff. I've I've eaten well. I've uh, relaxed well. Life is good. What can I say? That sounds like a great way to live. Yeah. So uh, we got a uh, we've got some pre-show activity to uh, take care of right. this week. Um, so I will uh, I will start off with our usual uh, factual correction. Thanks once again to Anatoly, and also uh, a, a subsequent correction of Anatoly's correction. Thanks to Emma Yurat Akago. Who, oh, this um, is getting this is getting nasty. I like it. I know the tangled web we weave. Um, <laughs> they clarified that Load Runner: The Legend Returns that we had mentioned right. last time. I had incorrectly incorrectly attributed that game uh, to having been published by Dynamics, but it was in fact published by Sierra and developed. I know I'm going to get the name wrong by Pre Presage Software. Presage. Oh yeah, Presage. I I, I remember them very vaguely. Um, were they famous for anything else? I should have looked that up. I don't know. This was the only one yeah, that I, I don't had known. Either. They did a good job of that oh. game. Yeah, um, I'm trying to. I in my head, I'm still mixing it up with 
the Load Runner for Windows like 3.1 or Windows 95, and I'm, I don't know which one I played. This would have been the 95 one, I guess. Okay, the one with the really cool graphics, right? I thought so, yeah. Mm. Uh, cool. So, so that so so who corrected whom? We have to give our our, our audience proper credit. So, uh, it seems to me that um, Anatoly got he he had the correct name in mind, but I think his uh, his smartphone uh, autocorrect garbled it, and so it was uh, uh, corrected in turn by Emma Yurat. So, uh, I see. We can thank them both. By the way, I am seeing. No, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know what games these guys made. I'm no good at on the fly. I'm no good at on-the-fly research. Oh, well. <laughs> we will attribute this fantastic game to them, and that much will be enough, I think. Um, I want to thank uh, Trolls for suggesting that we... Uh, first of all, for uh, suggesting that we engage the Stitcher service to publish our oh, yeah. our uh, podcast. It took them a good, like, 11 or 12 days or so after my submission, but they have at long last added us to their service. Wow, so we're a part of the club. We are. We are, so for, cool. for those who stitch, you may stitch us at that stitcher thing. I've never used it. I don't know what it is. I, but... still, don't, I still don't know what it is, but I'm really glad that we're on it. <laughs> yeah, some kind of some kind of podcast repository, I guess. So thank you, Stitcher, okay. for, for, <laughs> your, for your gracious acceptance of us. Um, and uh, Trolls also had the suggestion that we add our contact information to our website, of all places. Oh. Not, and not only mentioning it verbally on the, site, on the show. So uh, I added, That is I added a very, that very too. good point. I thought so. So that's on there, too. So thank you very kindly, Trolls. Um, cool. And uh, last of all, from our very good friend Trolls, he has... Oh, no, before I get to the last of all, um, he also mentioned that uh, in regards to our conversation about Donald Duck's playground, about Al Lowe, yes. that in his own conversation, which was sadly unsuccessfully recorded with Al Lowe, he got to uh, thank him personally for having made that game. So that's quite Oh, awesome. Oh, I'm so glad that Trolls, you you, you play Donald Duck's playground, too. No one talks about that game. There were a few... Mm. Um, kind of Disney Sierra games that came out around that time. One of them, another one was like Mickey's uh, Mickey's Astronaut Adventure or Mickey's Trip to the Moon. I, I honestly can't remember it. Oh, I hadn't um, heard that one. There, yeah, there's there's a few really. Um, they were released in these white Sierra boxes that are actually really beautiful, um, and they all kind of came around at the same time. But Donald Duck's uh, Playground, I thought, was just like, I don't know. There's something very genius about the way that it's designed that. You know, like I like I referred to it as a capitalism simulator, but basically, uh, <laughs> it's really good at getting kids to think about it's like spend your money wisely because there is it's very hard to get it, and once you have it, it's very hard, very easy to lose it. Well, I guess that game was unsuccessful then because I rarely spend my money wisely. <laughs> but thank you all the same, Mister Low. That is a very good yeah. Game. Turn, yeah. Turns out you're better at just like uh, dick jokes, Al Low. And, yeah. Uh, thank you for listening to our podcast, Al. <laughs> That's I'm right. Thanks, Matt. thanks, Al. <laughs> Trolls also mentioned that he had the distinct honor of speaking with Scott Murphy, one of the two guys from Andromeda, for two hours when he was a kid. So that's oh, his. Oh, you're kidding me! That's how he gets to one up our having sent letters to uh, some heartless corporations and <laughs> either hearing back or not hearing back from from someone or no one. Yeah, <laughs> so I, that's I, pretty I, cool. I, I, I'm guessing he didn't send an indignant letter to Scott Murphy and expect a reply. I'm guessing he he did what we call the the friendly thing and actually talked to him like a human being. Yeah, I've I've heard that some people do that. So uh, I, don't, I don't get it. Maybe that's why trolls went into uh, into uh, social media communication stuff. He's a per- <laughs> he's the personable sort. That would explain why I'm not on it. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. Good man, trolls. 
And so last of all then, uh, Trolls left us a great voicemail about some of his adventures or possibly misadventures using QBasic. We spoke a little bit about some Microsoft QBasic games like uh, Gorillas. There's Gorillas.bass. And what was the yep. other one? Oh, it was Nibble, wasn't it? Nibble, that's right. Was Nibble the snake game? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a Gee, pretty good iteration I, of it. Uh, yeah, I completely... In fact, this morning I was just talking about every kind of... Uh, there was like a thousand versions of Nibble a, a, around. I don't. I still to this day don't know what the original snake game was um, before it became, you know, ported to every single system imaginable. Yeah, I think uh, I think most of the kiddies will probably attribute that game to uh, Nokia because that was the bundled game. Yeah, exactly. On their phones, and it was great on their phones too. But uh, it, it was it was probably a superior version on their phones than it was in uh, Basic. But uh, yeah, I, I played plenty uh, of it. Yeah, I remember uh, when Nokia phones first kind of had their uh, the proper addressable LCD screen and Nibble was out, people would, I'd see people standing at the bus stop playing it. You know, there'd be like three or four people crowded together and they're all playing Nibble on their phones. Mm-hmm. Or Blackjack. Of course. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Cool. Did you uh, you so, ever program anything with QBasic? Uh, I, I'm trying to remember. I remember telling Anatoly at some point I did, but as it turns out, I lied. It wasn't QBasic I was using. I was actually using Microsoft GW Basic. Ah. Um, and I, I don't really know how the implement, implementation differed. I think QBasic had some, uh, I don't know, it, it, it differed in some meaningful way. I think qu- quite in, in a very large way, actually, from GW Basic. But uh, GW is the one that came uh, kind of as a pack-in with MS-DOS 3.3 on my computer. Oh, are you sure? I thought it was later than that. I thought it even came after QBasic. Uh, my, I, I could have had a very, very old version of GW Basic. Well, what I um, remember from, it might have been DOS 2 or DOS 3, was another one called Basic A. Oh, no, I, I don't think I ever saw that one. Oh, that's the first one, or maybe even the only one. No, it was the first one. Yeah, I, that actually might be the only one that I ever tinkered with, and I, I played with okay. that a whole bunch. Cool. Did it have, um, I don't know how to explain it, did it, did it have kind of like a menu editor, or was it just typing in stuff from the DOS uh, prompt? Basic A was it was like a line line editor. It, was, it didn't okay. have like the kind of GUI position your your uh, your, uh, right, cursor your cursor elsewhere on the screen. It didn't have the pull down menus with that blue background or whatever like uh, QBasic had. I don't know if I ever used GW Basic. Did it GW Basic had the same interface as QBasic? Didn't it? It did. Yeah, exactly. It had that drop down menu system just the same way you you describe it. I, and I think it was. For some reason, I want to say it was gray on black or blue on black or something like that. I think it was um, blue, and it was the same interface as uh, edit.com or edit.exe. That's right, edit, yeah. edit.com, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I forgot about that command, edit.com. It makes me so irate that I, I still have, you know, when I'm using DOSBox, I still have this tendency, uh, if I have to modify, uh, I don't know, an auto-exec file or anything like that or, a, you know, a, a configuration file for a Sierra game, I type edit, you know, um, Sierra.cfg, and then it's like bad commander file name. I'm I like, know, what? I know. Like, they really oh, ought yeah, to add that. Right. I, I should uh, one of these days code a. I'm sure this exists out there, but a, a nice little uh, um, Microsoft Edit.com uh, ripoff. <laughs> it could really <laughs> Program use that. Visual Basic. It's kind of conspicuously absent. They really ought to. They really ought yeah. to add something like that. Exactly, because I notice even you know on Linux and um, Unix distributions, I'm. I'm always so happy or excited when the um, the it comes with a built-in copy of Pico or EE or one of those other little uh, 
uh, tiny editing programs. Uh, I'm so used to having it, and DOSBox is shocking that it doesn't have anything at all. Yeah. I That's don't right. think it even has... Do you remember Edlin? My dad used Edlin, and he showed me that one, and it seemed incomprehensible to me, so I somehow got by, I think, not editing text files until edit.com came out, or maybe I used Edlin a little. I don't know. Did you use that one? I despised Edlin. The second I was... Very clunky. I, I, oh, it was awful. It was just like um, this other line editor that exists for Unix. I can't remember the name of it right now, which I also despise. Um you know, because you couldn't, you know, you couldn't move up and down through a file. You'd have to kind of pick the line number you're going to be modifying, mm-hmm. modify the line number, and then memorize these complex key code, you know, key codes to save, exit, and all of that kind of stuff. I'm sure if there's an Edlin lover out there, we'll hear from them uh, on the next episode. But I don't know a single person who ever used Edlin or liked Edlin, and they would kind of find any other alternative to modifying a file other than using that one. I, I remember not even being able to know how to escape from it, so I would actually reset my computer if I accidentally ran it, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. My my dad did know how to use it. it. I just didn't get it whatsoever. It seemed kind of somewhere between, like, VI and regular VI, expressions that's what I'm me. picking up. Exactly. Uh, it was just like VI. Oh, I learned VI in college. I actually love VI. I forget all the almost all the, the keystrokes for it, but once you get into it, it's like the, the keyboard lover's dream. Really, I'm shocked. I remember. Uh, I remember. Um, I learned my first um, real text editor was actually um, for uh, a Unix distribution. I think it might have been um, uh, FreeBSD. And my uh, boss at the time, I was 15 years old. I, I can't remember if I've told the story. I used to work in an ISP when I was a kid. You told me, um, but not the podcast. Oh, okay. Um, I'll, I'll save the story for another time. But I. When I was 15, I worked in the first uh, internet service provider ever um, in northern Canada, um, helping to set up the ISP. And my boss, very patiently, the guy was incredible, Jeff Phillip, you're, you're an amazing guy, um, very patiently sat down for hours teaching me how to use Emacs. Um, mm-hmm. That's a good and, one. And I still re- remember every single one of those key c- uh, command keys, Control-X, Control-C, Exit and Save, uh, <laughs> I haven't used Emacs in years because there's so many other simpler things. But, yeah, I know that people in the Linux, Unix world become crack-addicted to their VI and Emacs, and there's ongoing religious wars over it still. Oh, yeah, yeah. The the text editors are one of the many holy wars <laughs> that are embroiled in the <laughs> uh, Linux world. Yes. So 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 it's, it's of no surprise to me that no one could give a shit about Edlin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Good riddance. I'm... There might have actually been another iteration of edits.com or something in the early DOS days as an alternative to oh. Edlin. And I must, I can't imagine that I went without editing the, uh, text files. You just can't do that in the old DOS days. I think there might have been an older edit.com and then in DOS 3 or DOS 5 or something, they revamped it into something that was even nicer. That would make sense because I, in DOS 3, I was very easily able to edit all of my um, um, autoexec and config.sys files. Um, I'd love, actually, if anybody wants to write in or... Uh, send in a quick uh, note or voicemail. I'd love to hear um, what your er- earliest memory is of editing configuration files because uh, I'm sure we'll get to this on one of the many future episodes we have, but uh, I, I would say about if 50% of my time was spent playing games, um, 50% of my time was spent editing autoexec.bat and config.sys so the games would run. Oh, yeah, that became as much an art as a science. Absolutely. Um, at some point, I remember DOS, I want to say DOS 5, but possibly it was only DOS 6, 
added the menuing system to AutoExec? I don't know if that was a function of the operating system or if that was something you had to put in with if statements in your AutoExec.bat. Because oh, batch files well, could what, have if statements and variables that's right. and inputs. Ba- batch files did, but they actually added inbuilt support in the actual AutoExec where you could type uh, in square brackets menu config. Um, and oh, they had, you yeah. could actually... You could set ANSI colors. It was it was beautiful. I can't remember which version of DOS uh, offered that. Um, I, for, in my memory, it was DOS 6.22, but that's only because I made a massive jump. I went from DOS 3.3 to DOS 6.22 in one leap, so I kind of missed all the ones in between. Oh, uh, I went, yeah, I think from three, I think I either started at two or three point something, and then five, and then six, and there oh, were wow. pretty big deltas between all of those versions. Exactly. I want to. I want to say that DOS five was the one that added um, upper memory block and uh, XMS, EMS support, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we should go into that. Well, maybe we can tap into our our friend DOS Nostalgic one of these yeah, days for please. some of those. I, I I don't know if he's as much a whiz with the operating systems as he is with the games. And we should I plug his. Uh, we should plug his podcast if we haven't already. The DOS Nostalgia podcast. Oh yes, absolutely. Which is especially great because both Chris and I have been guest speakers on there, but uh, <laughs> he never really, fails we're to just get plugging our own podcast, <laughs> aren't we? <laughs> he does get some really incredible speakers, though. Um, he, I, I really, I really loved his one with Carlos Texiera. I don't know how you pronounce his last yes. name. Texiera. I don't know um, about uh, really, really nerdy uh, old school. PC hardware. That was, he's a oh, he was like a fountain, fountain of so. information. I, 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 those are my favorite episodes when Anatoly basically just says, "Oh yeah, have at it," and just tell, <laughs> tell me everything you know for the next two hours. And and you know, uh, Jim Leonard was also like that with the uh, I think it's the early early IBM PC episodes, mm-hmm. kind of going into a really crazy detail. Um, your, your episode with Anatoly is just fantastic. I loved listening to everything you guys talked about in terms of sound cards, because that's a, that's a territory I don't know at all. Um, well, thank you. Yours with Mark, Pirate, he was really good, too. I think that was actually where you had told the story about working in a, an ISP, was on his piracy oh, episode. Oh, that's funny. I don't, didn't even know I mentioned it there. That's really cool. Oh, and about um, copying and, floppies or something that you were distributing oh, as a service. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I was, a, I was a bad kid. I would go into the uh, retail part of the store, <laughs> open up packages, copy all their files, and then uh, repackage them. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's great. Um, and I actually have some really good stories for future episodes from the same workplace, too. I, I loved working there, and um, I've got some really, really cool stuff. And we'll actually cover one of those stories today. Um, but before that, we should probably uh, listen to the most recent voicemail we received from Trolls. Yes, let's do that. Back to the, Dialing it back to the topic of QBasic. So, Mr. Trolls, please take it away. Hey guys, Space Quest Historian Trolls here. Um, last episode, you guys were talking about programming for your uh, TI calculators, and um, I thought that was kind of cool and kind of interesting. Um, and uh, if you're hearing a noise in the background, that's my cat going to town on his scratching post. Um, anyway, um, I was never uh, any good with math, so I never took advanced calculus, so I never had a calculator uh, of the sort, but uh, I did sit around uh, with my uh, um, with my old computer playing uh, with uh, QBasic, and uh, everyone knows QBasic. It's the uh, basic interpreter that came with MS-DOS back in the day, so maybe not everyone knows about it, but a lot of people know about QBasic, and you guys mentioned uh, uh, some QBasic games like uh, Bananas or uh, Gorillas, I think it was, yeah, uh, which was kind of a precursor to Scorched Earth. Um, 
So I was sitting around playing with this thing, and I figured I'm gonna I'm gonna do an adventure game with it. So um, to start off with, I uh, you know typed in a bunch of if then sentences and tried to uh, create a parser uh, with an input uh, and just basically try to uh, um, clairvoyantly foresee everything that the player might enter into uh, w one of these parsers. So that would mean every single sentence I could think of, I would put that into an if then else. Uh, statements and uh, actually this is going back a bit uh, before QBasic uh, for MS-DOS 5 I think there was something called GWBasic which uh, had you know it was basically kind of the same thing it had a black screen instead of the uh, uh, cute blue edit screen that uh, QBasic had and uh, it didn't have uh, um, you, you couldn't do uh, subroutines with it because um, in QBasic you could call a subroutine uh, to ostensibly save memory space, although I'm not quite sure about that. Uh, that will come into play, uh, because when I got my hands on QBasic, I said, okay, um, the whole thing about uh, you know trying to t uh, foresee everything that the player might conceivably type into a parser, that's going to get old fast, and uh, <laughs> you know that's an awful lot of if-then statements. So I was thinking, how can I, how can I uh, sort of simplify this process? And at this point, I've been playing, you know, graphic adventure games, LucasArts games with uh, with icon bars. So I figured, all right, I'll do I'll do an adventure game engine of sorts in QBasic. Although I'm not a programmer, I, f I figured I could do um, a sort of thing where you would select the verb from a list, like look, get, talk, and such, and uh, then the player would type in whatever it is they wanted to look and get or talk to. Um, so. I would have like a, uh, a scene description or a room description, and then uh, the uh, uh, icon bar would show up at the bottom of it, and uh, you would either press W for walk, and then it would ask you which direction you wanted to go in. You'd press L for look, and then it would ask you to type in what you wanted to look at, and so on and so forth. And if you press T for talk, it would ask who you wanted to talk to, and then it would bring up a dialogue tree, uh, which was basically just, you say this, and then uh, the keys one, two, and three would select uh, responses. So I basically built my own little crude uh, adventure game engine in QBasic, which uh, uh, sort of um, well, it, it got over the it got over my hurdle of being completely unable to program a parser that would uh, you know recognize uh, words in a sentence. Uh, I, instead, I had to program in the entire entire sentence. So I overcome that hurdle. Uh, I still had to type in every synonym for what it what it was you wanted to look at or get and such. Uh, but that still you know it saved a bunch of time. So I sat down to create a uh, Space Quest fan game. Of course, what else? What else? I was gonna do a Space Quest fan game, and I actually did a Space Quest fan game using this little adventure game engine of mine. It uh, had Roger on a shuttle with Beatrice at the beginning, and then they would go back to the Deep Ship 86, which is the ship you fuck around in on uh, in, in, in Space Quest 6, and then there would have been some sort of a hostile takeover, and uh, Roger would have to climb through the vent and uh, distribute this antidote through the ventilation system. And it was a short, fun little game, but... Uh, uh, very quickly, I ran into the uh, problem that I know most of you have probably already foreseen. Uh, even though I figured I'd saved myself a bunch of time and effort by doing this little adventure game engine, I inevitably ran into QBasic's wall of uh, my memory is full. So, which I think is around. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. It's been so long, but I think it's around what is it, eight, 80 kilobytes or something. <laughs> 
So I basically got the first half of the game coded before I ran into this wall, and I had no idea I had this, uh, you know, memory limitations, because, you know, I was, what, uh, 15, I think? 14, 15? I don't know. Um, so I had half a game programmed, and I couldn't add any more to the game because I got an out-of-memory error. So, okay, fine. Um, I will simply do part two as a sta uh, another standalone QBasic file. So I coded in, um, I coded up the second half of the game in, an, in, an, in, a, in a different file. And um, I made a little readme file that said, please don't start part two unless you finished part one, because it will totally ruin the surprise for you, and, and stuff like that. So I actually got all the way, I actually coded up the entire thing, and now cue tragedy music. Uh, because once I had finished coding up part two, for some inexplicable reason, I wasn't a very smart kid, I somehow managed to save over part one. Which was very, very disheartening. <laughs> and I sat there staring blankly at the screen for what seemed like a month, and just looking at it going, I did not just do that, I did not just do that. And so I had part two of a game that had no part one now. And, uh, you know, so inevitably I was just, you know, completely despondent and thought, well, oh, fuck it, I'll never ever get to code part one up again. Uh, it's just too much damn effort. I put in a huge dialogue tree for Beatrice. I put in the entire uh, shuttle that you walked around in at the beginning. It was very, well, to me anyway, it was very, you know, sprawling and huge. And, and there was tons of things to interact with, uh, which is probably why I hit the 80 kilobyte uh, limit. Um, so I just, I just, you know, packed it in, thought, fuck it, I'll never get to do this again. And then, you know, the thing is just lost to the ages now. It was probably on, it was probably on my first, uh, uh, my dad's first uh, 386 hard drive. Can't remember the size of it, but, uh, you know, he never backed that thing up. It's long dead. Uh, we'll never see it again. But I still have, uh, you know, a pretty clear and vivid memory of this cutesy little QBasic adventure game engine that could, uh, which, you know, it's completely hopelessly outdated now. Um, but um, that was a fun little exercise for a complete non-programmer like me. Uh, and on that note, uh, just to uh, uh, just to uh, derail the topic for a bit, um, big, big shout out to Chris Jones and the Adventure Game Studio community for building a cute little adventure game engine that could uh, for complete non-programmers like me who are now able to fulfill their childhood dreams of creating adventure games with little to no programming effort or skills or talents or anything that you need to actually code games. So um, I just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, keep up the good work and, um, you know, uh, oh, and give my best to uh, Mr. Chucklehut Chandler. Um, it was a very good episode. I love that. So, um, yeah, have a good one. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tros. Oh, that was a really good story. So I guess it's uh, I guess it's abundantly clear that we hadn't listened to his uh, uh, voicemail before we started prattling on about uh, the mysteries of GW Basic versus Q Basic. He kind of answered all of our unknowns there. there in one fell swoop, didn't he? So thank you very much, Trolls, for being the font of information that you are. <laughs> um, that was a really good story. Uh, it's pretty similar to uh, my story, I guess, of having written uh, some songs from my friends' Jumping Cowboys games and then somehow losing it right as soon as I had like put the finishing touches on it. So uh, I think we all, we've all been there. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. Um, and he, well, he's, I'm uh, really sad that uh, Trolls the part two of the Facebook stand game didn't survive the uh, transition from the 386 because I would have loved to see, uh, you know, that code. One of the one of my favorite things is is looking at was it 
this makes me sound tremendously boring, but I love looking at old source code for you know games that have been uh, around for a long time. Um, one of the strange things that I've come across over the years, I can't. Uh, I'll I'll tell you off the air, but I can't go into specifics right now. Um, but over the years, I've come across just randomly, not because I've been looking for it, just because I've found it by accident, is source code for commercial games, DOS games released, you know, in the 90s. Um, big, big source trees, like stuff, stuff that, um, you know, I have no idea how they escaped their company's hands. Um, and I would have loved to see uh, your uh, very early... Adventure Game Studio precursor in uh, in QBasic Trolls. I, I actually didn't realize that QBasic had an 80k um, an 80k uh, window for memory. Um, mm-hmm, I would have me assumed either. it was mu- yeah, I would have assumed it was much larger. But when I think about it, it kind of makes sense because it's basically loading that entire QBasic interpreter into memory, um, and so that's I'm guessing that's taking up quite a big chunk of your already limited conventional memory at that point. Um, that's what I was again, thinking. I there must not be any uh, expanded or extended memory at that point in time. Yeah, and or or possibly that it, QBasic wasn't even capable of addressing it, um, mm-hmm. even if it did exist in the system. Um, I, I suspect it might be because if I think about it this way, um, you know the old. The old computers, uh, like Commodore 64, etc., had basic. Uh, another one would be the Tandy Trash 80, um, had basic in ROM, and it would take about you know 16k or 32k of your 64k total, leaving you with like a little a bear maker scraps to program the rest of the game. Um, and it's very, very possible that QBasic just basically never overcame that foundational problem of of managing memory. Uh, but anyway, uh, if somebody happens to know, I'd love to know why QBasic has such a low, you know, a, a low top-end uh, memory allocation size. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe it is telling that the fact that uh, Charles confirms that GWBasic uh, predates QBasic, which seem to have more uh, sophisticated capabilities. Yeah, um, GWBasic was a, a pretty ugly little beast, but I, I, I loved it. And I... And I actually, to this day, I wonder if um, it was only QBasic that came with Gorillas and Nibble. Um, I don't remember if GW Basic was the one I I got it with, but I do remember that um, the first time I actually saw Gorillas was. Do you remember Ambra or Amber monitors? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the first time I ever played, and, and we had a full full color monitor at the time. But the first time I ever saw Gorillas, I was so bored. I was bored to tears when I was a kid. I was just, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. My aunt had, huh, I want to say it was an AST Advantage um, computer. And AST, I think, was a Canadian uh, uh, computer seller at the time, but I'm not really sure. Sounds um, familiar to me. It could be a Canadian thing. Yeah, I can't remember where, where she got this thing from. But at the time, the only thing it had on it was WordPerfect, like, 2.2 and uh, uh, QBasic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I became, I, I was there for a, a month visiting my aunt's house, and I became intimately familiar with Gorillas and Nibble because it was the only thing I could play on that uh, monochrome screen because I didn't have any, uh, uh, the machine had a five and a quarter inch disk drive, and I didn't have any of my five and a quarter inch games there with me. I had brought, stupidly, I had assumed all computers had three and a half inch at this point, 
so those were the only ones I brought with me, and, and you should have saw my face when I realized I couldn't ever play, you know, Space Quest 3 on my aunt's old uh, <laughs> AST. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you, Trolls. Um, and I'd also like to give a big um, thank you to the open source community that maintains AGS and to Chris Jones, of course, for creating it uh, from scratch. Um, you have no idea kind of how flexible and wonderful AGS is. I remember a year ago complaining to our friend Ben, uh, who was in the last episode, about how frustrating I found AGS and its stupid little quirks and Oh geez, you know this program drives me nuts, and and geez, why why is it limited in these this way or that way? And I wish it had this, I wish it had that, and you know, a couple of months later, I just totally fell in love with it. It's like, I don't know, it's like buying a Volvo. You <laughs> you know you should come to expect some problems, some very specific problems with it, but you're you know it's it's your car for life after that. So thank you so much. I really need to delve back into AGS. I took my best crack at, at it at the tutorial that's on their forum, and yes. I got pretty far. I watched a really good uh, series of instructional videos on YouTube as well, and then followed along the tutorial, and I made a couple of rooms and being able to walk between them and having a character who could uh, bump into some objects and walk behind other objects. And right. uh, In the end, oh, I had such a negative experience on the AGS forums when I was asking for help because I found some oh, typos no. in the code of on the tutorial right. on the website and so I just mentioned that on the website and some some really hostile guy was like oh you have to be stupid not to know that that's a typo in, in the thing that you're instructed right. to copy and paste and uh, somebody else like backed him up and oh that just scared me away from there that was like a year ago that scared me away from their forum oh, for good gee, pretty that's, much that's... That's too bad. I I've, I know that some of our listeners are quite active on the AGS forums. I'm I'm not. I I don't really go to the forums at all. Um, I'm not kind of too experienced with it. But I think it was about a year ago I poked around in the forums and I was kind of you know there there was a big mixture of uh, kind of people criticizing and being angry with each other and a mixture of really wonderful technical help um, that I saw people giving. So yeah, I think it's a real mixed bag over there. And I think you know that's. That's a part of communities that are around for a long time. I think, you know, the AGS editor, I think, is 15 years old at this point. Yeah, thereabouts. And, thereabouts. Uh, you know, it's amazing that that community stuck it out for so long. Our good friend Francisco, who I can't wait for us to have an episode with him, um, mm. you know, has been one of the longer survivors of the AGS community. And uh, I'm always blown away that, you know, um, how, how, how many friendships have emerged uh, through AGS as just a piece of software that, you know, somehow makes people want to come together in community. So um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully you get a chance to, to, to tinker around with it. Because I think I've used a lot of engines over the years. I've coded in a lot of different engines. Um, and I think very in a very funny way, AGS is, has become one of my all-time favorites um, just in terms of um, it's so adaptable, so flexible, um, some days, you know, I think to myself, oh, I wish, you know, uh, I wish there was a function that could do this. And I think, well, what am I talking about? I'll just code, code a function that'll do that. Other days, um, I say to myself, um, you know, how, how is it that somebody thought of making a function that um, does random generation uh, on the basis of a mathematical paper submitted in 1988, and it does a perfect job of it? And there's a there's somebody already coded a module for that, and I think, wow, what a community! So, yes, uh, before I derail us anymore, that's I, I can only give such high praise to AGS. Mm-hmm. 
Well, why don't I uh, why don't I take advantage of this as a segue then, as one of the games that I played this week because it was an AGS game, and in fact, oh. by the very gentleman that you mentioned, Mr. Francisco Gonzalez, I played um, I played a, a game of his, a very silly one called Ben Chandler Paranormal Investigator, <laughs> <laughs> starring our, our our co-host from last week, Mr. Ben Chandler. Have you heard of or played this one, Chris? I I I've heard of him mention it several times on the ATS po- uh sorry the B- Blue Cup Tools podcast. And uh no, I haven't played it yet. So could you tell me and everyone else uh, what the theme is? It's obviously a reference to his classic Ben Jordan series. I I would say so. I I or it's a yeah, it's a reference to anyway in the title. So uh the premise is that our hero Ben Chandler who is a, a gentleman living in Australia, and he is extremely Australian in this game, and voiced by Ben Chandler himself as well. So, <laughs> the premise is... Crikey, Mike! <laughs> it's basically the same kind of an intro as uh, Freddie Farkas' Frontier Pharmacist, where the okay. preamble is told in song, as uh, yes. sung and played by Francisco Gonzalez on his guitar. <laughs> Oh, you're kidding me. It's a a song about uh, how Ben Chandler loses his tin of sweets, and it's all sung to the tune of Waltzing Matilda. It's really... (laughs) Oh, my wife and I laughed so hard. It is extremely cute. And it's just... Everything is so Australian. Like, Mr. Ben Chandler in his his, uh, house, where it starts, has these awesome... uh, references uh, to adventure games in the form of these posters that he has on the wall, but they're like right. uh, Australian versions of adventure games. And so he has like G'day of the Tentacle and uh, <laughs> Grim Fandingo. <laughs> oh, so the, the humor just kind of goes on like that. I left so hard. It was a very just cute, good-natured little adventure game. It probably took me like 40 minutes to finish in total. So, so cute. That's, that's amazing. Free of charge. I will most certainly put a link to it in our show notes. I'll link to uh, Francisco's whole page where there are many, many uh, free games on there. there there's got to be like 20 or 30 hours of free games on his website. Uh, what a guy. It's amazing. Francisco is one of the most, um, what's the word, um, people who are right, who are capable of writing a lot in a very short time. Um, prolific. Prolific, yeah. He's the most prolific AGFer I know of. He's like the um, Stephen King of adventure games. Yeah, exactly. Literally. I mean, half of them are paranormal investigation game. That's true. Uh, I uh, I'm blown away. Oh, I had I had no idea that that was the theme of the game. When when they mentioned it on BCT, I actually thought it was a joke. I didn't realize that he was actually referring to a real game. Oh, when the game itself is totally a joke, but it's <laughs> extremely well executed. There's like characters with not only like not only competent and enjoyable animations, but like funny animations. So that's <laughs> Animations, as you know, having listened to their podcast, I know that's like the thing that takes so, so, so much time and care and uh, trial and error and erasing and redoing. So uh, I certainly appreciate the effort that they put into that silly little game. So I I can't sufficiently recommend it. It was a really funny one. Awesome. Um, All right. I will quickly go through the other games that I played, and I'd love to hear what you played as well. Um, I played a couple of rounds this week of the 2011 version of You Don't Know Jack with my wife. Oh, that came, that I didn't even realize there was a 2011 version. Yeah, they. Uh, so uh, the first You Don't Know Jack, my first exposure to the very first one was on a demo disc, and I think it was actually like a You Don't Know Jack branded disc that I pulled off for free of the shelf of uh, or a counter of a software store. Okay. Man, you remember remember when software stores existed? I miss those. I know, me too. I, I was just thinking on, I, I drove past an old software store location yesterday, 
and and I turned to my girlfriend and I said, "Hey, do you remember when that was like a?" I can't remember. It was a CompuSmart or or CompuCenter, one of those kind of places. Mm. And she's like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> I guess you had to be in the know. There were a whole bunch of them uh, here in Toronto, so I really, really miss those. So that, I'm sure that's where I yanked this off of a shelf or something. And it had like one or two questions uh, in this demo, and I okay. and I was so amazed that number one, there was like this chatty uh host personality who would yeah the host was great schmooze with you uh, a bit. Really yeah it was voiceover. very human in its presentation yeah. it was really like uh being addressed personally by another human being and exactly what impressed me as well was that you know it's a multiple choice question the game is kind of uh, mostly a series of multiple choice questions and no matter which one you pick the host had something specific to say about exactly the one that you picked so they That's really right. went to a lot of effort to kind of establish these trees of dialogue which was a lot of detail a long way to go like to to maintain a joke and That's so funny. i played this I, demo no, I over never and really over. yeah i never really thought of you don't know jack as kind of a strange kind of adventure game in some odd way because yeah you're almost exploring your way through the menu options which is kind of funny kind of it's sort of i guess like a big um flow chart like a big decision yeah, tree exactly. sort of so uh, extremely impressive in its presentation and it really kind of belies a, a relatively simple uh, structure beneath it, but then it's all uh, put into the context of a kind of a, a zany uh, quiz show with lots of uh, innuendo and funny jokes. Yeah, and I seem to remember the, the the host. I haven't I haven't seen you don't know Jack since 1998 or 99, but mm-hmm. um, I seem to remember the, the the show host was kind of sarcastic and 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 kind of somewhat somewhat abusive to the <laughs> to the player over making mistakes and stuff like that that I can't remember. Oh sure, well that's uh, that's the name of the game. <laughs> so uh they've gone through I think two or three or maybe four different hosts as well over oh, the years. Oh really? Yeah, but they're they're each very very good. So the 2011 version is really just more of the same but very slick presentation. Um it they've always looked really beautiful despite being very simple games like a heavy use of uh, like kinetic typography, you might call it, just like animated right. That's words. That's right. Yeah, and letters the, the, the words would kind of zoom in on and off the screw, screen, that kind of thing. Yeah, you might kind of picture it as like what what would be on like a video monitor behind a proper game show, but that that right. video monitor is your interface with the game. So it's it's so well done. I love that game. My, my wife and I enjoy going back to that. We are just not very what? good at the pop culture references, and also they have a lot of Americanisms where you have to solve a question about gallons or something like that. We rarely get those. <laughs> that was what uh, system were you playing it on? Uh, that was on our PC. On my oh, PC. really? So they stuck, they stuck it out on the PC. I'm really shocked that they're still around. That one was also out on uh, on consoles, but what okay. really amazed me was when I somewhat recently, quite recently, last year, looked up the name of the company, which is Jelly Vision, which has been the right. name of their company ever since the very start. I think they, oh, they were with uh, wow. Berkeley Systems, and I don't know if they were a spin-off of Berkeley who made After oh, Dark. Oh, my God. Berkeley Systems was the company that did screensavers. Yeah, yeah, After Dark. Oh, man. So, um, I, they I, first... I, you, you totally oh, made ahead. a connection there that I didn't really appreciate before. I mean... Do you remember that um, Berkeley Systems had a, a one particular screensaver called Totally Twisted After Dark? Uh, yeah, I don't remember that one in particular, but I think I played uh, another one of their compilations that had what I think okay. you're about to mention, the quiz game. Uh, yeah, it had a quiz game, and it had really, really kind of sarcastic uh, kind of stuff built into it, and Totally mm-hmm. Twisted had things like, 
I think Totally Twisted got banned in several countries because they had this one, uh, this one um, screensaver, which was these bungee jumping um, clowns, and occasionally the cord would snap, the clown would fall to the bottom of your desktop and explode in blood and bones. Oh, wow. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, That's it was great. great. There was there was there was the Simpsons After Dark module which I bought. The best friggin' one. It was amazing. Oh, oh my god, the Simpsons trivia was so unbelievably good. Um, mm-hmm. They had Homer. Uh, if anybody remembers this, they had one where Homer and I think it's just Homer, but it also might be Flanders too, mowing the uh, screen in their Sunday dresses. Yeah, their wi- each other's wives' Sunday dresses or something. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like the best references to season one, season two humor for any Simpsons fans it out there. Really was. Uh, I liked Homer Eats, where you could like turn your whole screen into a humongous waffle, and Marge oh, would yeah. walk around pouring syrup on it while Homer eats it bite by bite. It was, it was great. And do you remember? It was because in the Windows three point one days, it would. This is like brilliant programming. They took um, the Windows UI, all the icons and stuff that were actually existed on your desktop, and Homer would walk up and, and, and dig through, like open up an icon and dig through it and then eat what was at, well, whatever was inside. And uh, <laughs> if he was eating an icon, he'd kind of go like, <laughs> and he'd uh-huh. like barf it back up. Mm-hmm. That's oh, right. man, There's an itchy and scratchy one that uh, had them running around on your desktop as well and like throwing the icons at each other. And... That's right. Yeah. yeah. There was like axes flying across the screen. Oh my God. That, that is like, I, I think it was two or three years ago. I spent, I, I must've spent a solid week, um, getting windows 3.1 to run on my DOS box install. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I did, this is terrible. I got DOS box running. And then every time I'd have to walk away from my PC, I would like Alt enter DOSBox and full screen it so the Simpsons screensaver would like <laughs> run on my my Mac at the time. It was great. Oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. If only there were a way to get After Dark to work on our modern systems, you'd think they could resell that. Like I don't know, maybe oh, man. maybe screensavers are too out of vogue for that to be a thing. But I, I, I used chill. to just sit and stare at those. Oh yeah, I think screensavers like could easily make a comeback because they're just like so. I don't know. They're so expressive. Um, the flying toasters thing, but yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Berkeley Systems was huge in my memory, and it was also they're one of the very few companies at the time that did PC and Mac, um, kind of co-developing their PC and Mac apps. Because I know that yeah. After Dark was a, first a, a Mac application, I think, in black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And that was the application that introduced uh, screensaver hot corners to PC, which oh, never caught that's on. Right. But they exactly. stuck around on Mac. That's right, hot corners. I, I completely forgot about that idea. Yeah, it's it wasn't that long ago that since I tinkered with it. I think maybe the only reason I have Windows 3.1, or one of the few reasons I have it on my DOSBox installation, is so that I can play with regular After Dark and Simpsons After Dark. But uh, as you <laughs> mentioned, that trivia game, that very small trivia game, which was paradoxically the screensaver where you're encouraged to press buttons on your keyboard, that was kind of the version 0.1 of uh, what would become You Don't Know Jack later on. Wow, that's that's so cool. I didn't realize. I would love if somebody had like a history of Berkeley Systems because they did some really weird, zany stuff, and they always had a really good sense of humor. Um, uh, totally Twisted is long forgotten by people. It also had this built-in module called, I think it was called um, uh, Voyeur, um, and it was <laughs> it was a, it was a picture of like a Bronx or some sort of like downtown New York office or, or uh, sorry apartment building. And there was, like, um, at night, and people would open and close their shades, and you're basically just spying on your neighbors, watching them, you know, do these. You oh, neat. See, I think 
one woman undressing behind a curtain. There was a guy doing like naked push-ups on his. <laughs> it was bizarre. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> That's really neat. Oh, I just remember the name of that other module. You bet your head. You bet your head. Yes. And it had these cool, really zany, like very '90s-looking kind of abstract shapes for your your characters and these little <laughs> monsters. Oh, that was that was a good one. All right, I'm oh, gonna go man. get. I'm gonna go get this other iteration of. Uh, you don't know of uh, After Dark as well now because I got to see these. Oh yeah, they're 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 really really they're they're. Ex- I remember the box had a warning on it, um, <laughs> and then they had this. Oh, I could talk about this forever. I I remember them. I I would literally sit for hours because they would come with um, like eight or ten modules. The Simpsons had at least five or six of them. Um, More than yeah, about grand- eight or ten on its own. Yeah, it, there was like. Grandpa Simpson giving advice in his chair. Uh, it's like, there are too <laughs> yeah. many states nowadays. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> Falling asleep. Oh, yeah. And I'm, my, my parents would go nuts because I would turn this up and it would like echo through the whole house. And it was built on some sort of terrible, terribly built random randomizer. So, you know, it would be Abe Simpson. Do the like, same one over and over? <laughs> yeah, like five or six. There are too many states nowadays. And then he'd be like, there are French too many toast, states please. nowadays. <laughs> I just hear from the yellow, across the house, shut that off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. All yeah, right. So I was... highly recommend it. Um, I love Simpsons After Dark, and I think there are um, some other really, really famous modules I haven't even thought of right now. Yeah, it was a Star Trek one, which I never tried, but I don't think it was as charming. I got to see oh, that Oh, there one was still. a Star Trek one? Yeah, there was a Next Generation one. Oh, wow. Oh, and that's another thing to mention. Um that's another thing, uh, not often giving credit for any of our art enthusiasts like Francisco and Ben. Um, uh, if you want to see some of the best high-res um, vector-based art, it's in those games. Actually, it was, it was raster-based, but um, it looks like vectors in some ways because it's so incredibly sharp and well-animated. Um, it's just incredibly good 640 by 480 or even possibly higher-res uh, artwork that it's kind of unforgettable, and it's I think in 16 color even uh, for the most part. Oh yeah, Starry Nights in particular was such a pleasing. That's right. Uh, uh, it, it was a pleasing uh, illusion that uh, looked so much like buildings, but it was just a bunch of dots. Yeah, exactly, and it, and it was just beautiful. To st- it was mesmerizing. So yeah, totally. uh, what else have you been playing? <laughs> what else have I been playing? Um, I went on a bit of an adventure game kick after our our charming conversation with the charming Mr. Ben. Um, I first took his advice and uh, checked out a little bit of Beavis and Butthead in Virtual Stupidity. Oh, man. It's really cute. It's not the best adventure game in terms of design. There's a lot of this sure. kind of moon logic stuff where you just kind of use everything on everything until you proceed. But uh, if you know the show then and you know the characters, then there are some situations that uh, you know suggest themselves to be the right course of action, like feeding tons of caffeine to Beavis to turn him into Cornholio, which gives him super <laughs> nervous strength, stuff like that. So I think I'm probably about a quarter or a third of the way through the game. I may or may not get all the way through it, but I had some really good chuckles. I'm right now in this uh, coffee house where they are talking with a bunch of hippies about saving sperm whales, so I'm sure you can guess how that goes. <laughs> it's a it's a very cute game. The presentation's really good. The characters look right, and there's some video clips of the animation itself and all the voice actors of the original voice actors. So it's a really, really cool one. It's a real product of, like, the... I don't know if it was the 90s. It was the 2000s, I think. Early I 2000s, if, if I remember correctly. Um, mm-hmm. I think another game came out around the same time 
called Duckman. I don't know if you remember oh, that TV yeah. show. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that TV show. And I've played a little bit of the game. And they had yeah. all the original voices except for no Jason Alexander. So that That's right. broke it a little bit. But it was pretty yeah. good, the, the sound It alike. was well animated. I remember both yeah. Duckman and Beavis and Butthead had fantastic artwork. Um, really, really professional stuff. Mm-hmm. I forgot about the Duckman game. I should check that out again. But I'd like to watch that that series again because I love that show. Very sorry. Yeah. It was great, and it only, I think it only lasted a, one or two seasons, but it, it was really, really good at, at, for its time. Duckman, I think, was closer to like five or six, believe it or not. You're kidding me. Oh, no. no. Had a good run. Oh, I didn't know that. It went off the air in Western Canada, um, like after season one. I don't think whatever networks we have out here didn't pick it up, so we only got it, um, you know, we have Peasant Vision out here for a long time. We didn't have Cable Cable. So um, we had... Uh, you know, I think four basic channels, and yeah, they dropped Duckman. It was like it took up like the one a.m. slot on one of our local stations, and it just disappeared. I always assumed the show was gone. Yeah, oh, I just looked it up. Four seasons of that show. Oh I man, that's I, exciting! I remember it hopping from channel to channel too, because I think people complained about the the raunchy humor. <laughs> yeah, I remember it was. So it was the first time I had really saw an adult cartoon. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was great. I was in university at the time, and I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever saw. <laughs> it was a really good one. All right. So another adventure game topic that I'll cover uh, is the Blackwell series. My wife oh, just finished. I finished all the Blackwell games heart. last year. I love those games. I really love those games. Uh, such a nice revival of what it kind of like the, the, the good old warm in my heart feeling of adventure games that I didn't really feel to its fullest extent since maybe Sierra or maybe uh, the longest journey, but uh, very yeah. much that kind of a feeling that they give me. And they're so uh, mature and well written that they're just very respectful of audiences of my advanced age. So I appreciate that very much. So I finished the whole series last year. My wife uh, found a bundle, a humble bundle with, most or all of the games, I think most of the games, and bought the whole series, and she's been going through them systematically, so she's up to the very last one now, Epiphany. We finished the second last one together, Deception, and we're working oh, on Epiphany wow. now. So oh, those are so, so good. They're incredible, and they tie in, the, each episode uh, of the series ties into the next so completely well. The, um, Dave, um, the, the developer, um, Dave Gilbert, has done such an amazing job of creating character continuity, plot continuity, and then he's got this whole overarching um, kind of theme to the game that's resolved at the end of Epiphany, which I just find... I I remember several interviews with Dave mentioned Dave's always maintained that he knew how the game was going to end. And and he pulled it off. I I remember having my doubts, to be honest, um, when I got to Epiphany thinking, I... I don't know, you know, it's been, what, five games into the series. I don't know if he's going to be able to pull this off. And then got to the end, and I was very, very teary-eyed at the end of Epiphany, and I thought, okay, this couldn't have been pulled off better. I really think so, too. And in retrospect, seeing how it ends, you sort of see how it's coming. So I appreciated that. You really really do know that he he, uh, had it in mind all along. So, boy, do I appreciate that very much. Yeah, and and it's one of the few games where I felt, this is a really strange thing to say, but... It, uh, an author who's extremely compassionate to his characters. Um, he didn't, uh, this is a really weird thing to say, but I often find in games that developers, especially in the adventure genre, start to toy around, play around with their characters so much to the degree that um, it just becomes kind of nonsensical at some point. And I always felt that Dave treated 
um, Rosa and Joey as living, breathing human beings. And, you know, um, if, if, if they were going to go through a hard time in the game, it was going to matter. It was going to be meaningful to the player, and it wasn't just going to be some silly, uh, you, know, you know, trite thing. Um, so I, yeah. I think those games are destined to be classics, uh, without a doubt. I really think so. Yeah, I feel the same way too, and I'm glad that he ended it where he did because it could have just gone on and on and on, and then you know the same old familiar player uh, characters kind of find themselves in these zany situations, and they That's they right. uh, get through them like only the, their character would. But that, exactly. that would have been it, stretching it, it. Yeah, it never became monster of the week kind of stuff like the X Files did at, after three or four seasons. Mm. And uh, I, I loved, I, I, I just loved that I, every every episode of that game, I, I call them episodes now, I can because the series is complete. Um, I won't yeah. spoil anything, but I I can highly recommend that to anybody. Uh, what does your wife think of them so far? Well, she has, I would say, relatively low tolerance for adventure games. She's played yep. a bunch of them. She's inexplicably played some poorly translated, <laughs> like, third world games. <laughs> crafted adventure games with the most horrible localizations and stuff. I don't know where she finds the patience for ones like those, and she won't take my recommendations to play Salmon Max or Grim Fandango or anything like that. So sure. She picks and chooses, but this one has totally captivated her, and I think it's specifically because of the strong characters and the mature, uh, intelligent dialogue. So uh, yeah. it's great great to play those uh, as a team. Oh, that's Although fantastic. I, I let her my take the reins. My girlfriend mm-hmm. kind of found out about Blackwell through me uh, a year ago, and she she's played, I think, um, through Legacy, and then um, uh, what was the one after Legacy? Um, oh, geez, I I had the hardest time figuring out which one came next. I had to check <laughs> Wikipedia, having owned yeah. the whole series, to find out which one I'm supposed to play next. Yeah, um, she she played for the first couple, and she she unfortunately skipped the middle two. She has a habit of playing things um, completely out of order and reading books completely out of order, which baffles me. She was reading, um, have you ever heard of Mordecai Richler's Barney's version? Yeah. Um, she, um, we were talking one day and she was on page 85 of the book and I'm like, oh, you're reading Barney's version again. She's like, yeah, yeah, I love this book. And then the next day she was on page 325. I'm like, wow, you, you really hammered your way through the book. And then the next day after that she was on page like 110 I'm like, I'm really confused now. She's like, I can read this book in whatever order I want. <laughs> so so Apparently I think she so. has no problem with narrative continuity of any kind. So I'm sure, you know, 10 years from now, she's going to play the Blackwell Deception and be like, oh, that's why the game ended the way it did. <laughs> I guess so. She's probably the only person in the world who uh, watched Pulp Fiction in the correct order. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> or yeah, watch watch Memento from ending to beginning. Yeah, exactly. yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So the last game that I'll mention, but only briefly, because I'm going to uh, mention some more of its predecessor later on in our topic. But uh, I've been playing some Diablo three this week. Oh, Have you played nice. any of that series? You know what? I went really hard on Diablo one um, to the point where I almost burned myself out on it, and then Diablo two came out and never did. Um, I played it a little bit multiplayer with some friends of ours uh, about five years ago, but um, no, and I didn't even touch Diablo 3 because I was afraid it'd be more of the same. How are you finding it? Oh, so it's almost the same for me. Diablo 1, I loved it like crazy. I'll talk about it some more when we talk about our topic. Diablo Mm -hmm. 2, I tried to force myself to play it, and I don't think I've ever gotten more than halfway through or maybe two-thirds of the way through. Oh, boy, does that game have gorgeous cinematics, though. That that game had amazing cutscenes. 
in, I, in I can, incredible I can, style. Yeah, every single uh, Blizzard game I've ever seen um, from day one has had these amazing cutscenes that I just would watch over and over and over. Ah, so you're saying that because you haven't played Diablo 3, because <laughs> the oh, no. game doesn't have any cutscenes, really, per se. Oh, really? It has, well, so what Diablo 3 does, which is kind of cool, is, you know, Diablo 3 has quite a good story, or at least it's a story that's well told. It doesn't have that much of a story, but depending on which character, you can choose which um, class of character you want to be, and for those who don't know, Diablo okay. series is like a... Uh, uh, an isometric action RPG kind of a game where you're primarily having combat with swarms of uh, demons as yeah, like you're your sla- as fast as you possibly can. Yeah, that's right. Well, now you can hold your mouse button down instead of oh, playing, so that's a nice okay. uh, evolution of the genre. So you can choose your character class, but you can also choose your gender. And depending on what combination of those things you choose, um, the it has a different voice actor, you know, of course, but uh, your character is written with its own personality. So, like, the male oh. uh, caster and the female caster have different personalities. And so whoever they're talking to, um, the, you know, the story unfolds the same way and the other people say the same things, but your character says different things. And you, know, you really develop your own personality and you get to l- learn who wow. your character is. I, I love a, an RPG where... It, you can actually hear your character talking, and they have a mind of their own. They are a that's, character, and you're just kind that's of really interesting. What to do. That's a huge departure from Diablo one and two because you're kind of a blank slate in those games. You basically just exactly. upgrade armor, upgrade weapons. Yeah, exactly. So that's a really, really nice touch, and it gives it another dimension, and it makes it more replayable. But it's genuinely very funny and very smart, extremely well written, oh, and it, just so surprisingly funny. Just either because the characters themselves are funny, or because they take themselves so seriously and are such jerks that that in itself is funny so oh, wow pretty cool so i i'm enjoying that game greatly i it fell flat for me when i first bought it i like finished it once which isn't that much of an achievement apparently the real achievement is like maxing out your character and doing the super difficult stuff which i couldn't be bothered wow. to do but then i let it kind of i left it in the oven for a, a year or so or more and came back to it after uh, blizzard installed a bunch of patches and they like okay. turned it into a real masterpiece so I wow. love this game now. So I took another I, I, break and came back again now, and it's ever so much fun. Love it. That, that's amazing. And it's in full 3D now, right? Yes, it is in full 3D. And still the locked isometric perspective. Okay. So it's like 3D rendered characters, but you can't rotate your camera or anything. So it's nice, Wow, they really stayed um, true, to their, uh, true to the genre. They do, and it's for the best, because the controls are simple, the real... Uh, complexity is in the combinations of skills that you use, because depending on and and unlike the previous iterations of the game, you can freely change the specifications and the talents of your character. Like you don't have to buy right. points, or you don't have to re-roll like you did in the previous ones. Like make a brand new tune and kill your your current one. You can just change uh, how your uh, character is spec'd out on a, a whim. You can do it ten times in a minute if you want to, which makes it so much fun to experiment. Oh, that's crazy. So I sure oh. appreciate that. How does that work? So you're not re-rolling, are you just, just, and you're not assigning points to categories? What are you doing then? Yeah, that's right. So you become more powerful every time you level up, and the maximum level is 70 now. Um, okay. You have four, four buttons? You have four action buttons plus uh, a primary attack and a secondary attack, so like six okay. attacks total. And you can choose that from a menu of maybe 20 possible attacks. And each of those 20 attacks has like six different runes or whatever that slightly modify that attack. 
So ah. that's a humongous, and it it I, it doesn't even always like slightly modify it. Sometimes it significantly modifies it. It stays with the theme of what sort of an attack it is, but gives a very different result. It sounds like it's like borrowing maybe, a little bit from World of Warcraft's uh, 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 skills modifiers or attack modifiers. Yeah. That's a good way to put it, I think. Although it's still its own thing, a little bit. Interesting. So, unlike World of Warcraft, in this one, you can, just while you're standing there, re- ch- uh, give yourself brand new skills or choose different runes that modify those wow. skills. And that just significantly changes the balance of your character and the way that you approach or avoid enemies. So there's a lot of strategy and a lot of playing around. And naturally, every time a patch comes out and they rebalance things, it's not long before someone on the forum says, oh, I tried all this stuff, and this is clearly the most powerful combination. And if you ever play multiplayer, then that's all anyone ever does. I try to avoid those because it's so much fun to explore all the different uh, iterations that you can figure out yourself. Oh, that's fantastic. So, it sounds like the very satisfying role-playing portion then. It, it, it's very much like the early role-playing kind of stuff. However, just being so flexible and configurable adds this new dimension, whereas the old Diablo, which I played extensively, if you put a point in the wrong place, you could not undo that. That was your mistake That's forever. Right. And you could either deal with it or destroy your character because you've just done something <laughs> Yeah, that's a very D&D approach to things. That's right. Wow. That's right. That sounds awesome. I, I'm, you've, you are the first person, honestly, that's given... D3 uh, of a uh, uh, high recommendation to me. I think a lot of people like myself were very put off when they first saw that, oh, this just looks like Diablo 2 with um, 3D, 3D backgrounds instead of 2D, but that's, that sounds great. Yeah, no, it's got a lot of a lot of hidden depth. And so, oh, right, so uh, dialing it all the way back to the beginning then when I was talking about the uh, Blizzard's usual cutscenes. So now instead they sort of have these, like, history channel uh kind of um, documentary sepia-toned drawing sort of things, like a collage or like a a storyboard. But depending on who your class and gender is and who your individual character is, it says, it tells you the same story, but in the flavor of that character's own personality. Oh, interesting. So So, so so instead of of putting... Instead of putting your character on screen, they have your character narrating, sort of, or speaking okay, to him or herself. It's a bit of a cost-cutting measure. I mean, you, they wouldn't want to have to re-render uh, the same cutscene 50 different times for 50 different types of characters. Yeah, pretty much. I think the opening sequence, like when you start the game, has a, it's an animated, in the true bombastic Blizzard style. But after that, it's just these kind of boring storyboard things, which are kind of take it or leave it. But it's great to get to know your character. Yeah, it's funny how Blizzard's always maintain that same kind of cinematic cutscene style, um, very yeah, epic, bombastic kind of stuff. And uh, the camera, the camera's always moved around. I don't know if anybody else notices this, but even in Warcraft Two, Diablo, um, uh, or Starcraft, if I remember correctly, um, the camera moves around a lot in their in their cutscenes. It's always very very active, energy filled kind of scenes. And um, to this day, I think it, the best possible marriage of companies would be if Bioware said we want to buy all of Blizzard's cutscene animation people and just take them there. Um, oh, and, yeah. I mean, it's the one thing lacking in almost every Bioware game I've ever seen is uh, decent uh, 3D animation. And Bioware or Blizzard, for whatever reason, I don't know who they they have that does this, it just pulls it off. I remember when I was um, in high school watching the Diablo 1 intro over and over and over. Um, Me too, with the, the crow picking at, picking the eyeballs of the corpse. Yeah. And stuff. I've seen it's it so like, many times. It's like <laughs> that sound of the crow grabbing the eyeball out of the body is just like an impression in my head forever. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> me too. It's funny that we both focused on that one. Oh, yeah, totally. So, so that's yeah. it for me. Oh, and I'll say in BioWare's uh, defense, by the way, that although their animations do seem a little bit stilted compared to Blizzard's really buttery smooth ones, mm-hmm. BioWare's more recent games, I think, have awesome camera angles, uh, like a nice oh. variety of camera angles. It looks to me like a TV show or like a movie instead of oh, other games that might just have the camera sitting still. That's very so, true. The, I, I, yeah, I, they, that's changed a lot um, since Knights of the Old Republic. After that, they started to move their camera around a lot, especially during dialogue scenes. Yeah, exactly. It gives it a little bit of... It makes it a little more dynamic. Yeah, Knights of the Old Republic was very traditional, just like a series of emotes being uh, gestured by two people while they yeah. talk. That was, that was their cutscenes. But... One funny thing is I always notice, doesn't matter what the Bioware game is, the timing is always off. There'll be a... Of the emotes? Yeah, during <laughs> yeah. the emotes, it'll, it'll, it'll always be like... Um, it's like, I don't know, she'll say like... She'll fold her arms and she'll be like, just let me pass. And then there'll be like this imperceptible or I guess perceptible half a second pause. And then the other person will all of a sudden be like, turn on frown, frown engaged, you can't pass. <laughs> and it was, it was always this like hilarious problem with theatrical timing. And I think it had something to do with the way that they coded their engine. But uh, Bioware games all the way up to um, Mass Effect 3 had that same issue. And I always thought it was quite funny. <laughs> Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Like where they will only have one emote per line of dialogue, and sometimes yeah. in a line of dialogue, someone's disposition will go from like angry to friendly, and so they'll be smiling even during yeah. the angry. angry exactly. Part. It's like it'll his face will be like collapsed into this like thing of anger, and then you like pick the blue option, and all of a sudden you'll be like, "Oh, well, now we're best friends. So, can, do you want to come over? <laughs> do you want to come have a drink with my wife?" <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I know all too well. All right. All so, right. so that's that's me. What have you been playing this week, Chris? You know what? I haven't had a chance to play a lot this week. Um, the same usual one. What I ended up doing was, I know I went on about this game way too much. Uh, I mentioned Infocom's Cutthroats. Um, mm-hmm. And I finished it uh, last week, and uh, I got to see the end. And then I found out that the, this is an interesting uh, thing, and it kind of points to how... Uh, adventure and role-playing games sort of developed over time. Cutthroats is you you are randomly at the start of the game assigned one of three missions um, to go diving for sunken treasure. And the thing is, um, when you finish the first one, you say, okay, well, I want to go do the next one. Well, you only have a one in three chance of being assigned a different mission. So, uh, or I guess a two in three uh, chance. But um, the point was... Uh, I thought it really interesting that these weren't just seen as like three different quests in the same game. They're treated as three different games, um, which is really odd for somebody like me who's used to, you know, finish quest one, go back to your person assigning quest, finish quest two, go back to the person assigning quest, finish quest three, and we're done. This was like, yeah, sure. no, you actually have to reboot the whole game. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so you do. Oh, so what? It's like the, the game will take you along one of three branches, or maybe it will right. take you on another one, but perhaps not. Exactly, and and there's Weird. actually no way to guarantee that you're going to get a new new uh, a new mission. So I actually had this really frustrating experience of uh, rebooting the you know the this thing three or four times just to get a new mission. And the worst thing is the mission branching point is buried ten minutes into the game. Naturally, um, I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah, so you end up having to replay the first damn ten minutes like over and over and over until you finally get to the right spot. Um, hmm. That's a weird so design this, choice. It, it is, and I and I realize it's probably I suspect because um, the game's got very very infin, in, infinitesimal um, 
memory constraints. Uh, I think it's crammed into under 100 kilobytes for the entire game. So mm. th- it was probably just not possible to have three different mission selections uh, all available in the same game. So you just kind of said, well, you know, I'm sure the player won't mind rebooting once in a while. So anyway, I recently finished the second mission, and I thought it was fantastic. It was subtly different. Um, I was different. This time I was diving in a Spanish galleon, uh, a 17th century Spanish galleon, and the writer, Mike Berlin, or the implementer, I guess you'd call him, um, the Infocom designer who made the game and programmed it, he went through a lot of pains to give you a very different feeling. The first mission I did was I was a shallow scuba diving mission, which was, I think, in under 100 feet of water. And, um, and you get all the right scuba-related gears to do that one. But the second mission, you actually have to use a diving bell, um, you know, those old uh, Bioshock-style, you know, big iron helmet with a huge suit around you and air hose running to your body. Um, right. and, it, and it was great because it, it changed the gameplay completely. All of a sudden, I can't swim upwards because the thing is, you know, weighs 200 pounds. So, yeah, those are for walking on the surface, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So I, the only thing you can do is basically float downwards, um, and huh. it totally changes the style of the puzzles because you can no longer easily get up and down through the sunken galleon. You actually can only get up and down through specified points that have ladders, um, at some point, the ladder breaks underneath you, so you're really screwed. Um, it was it was fantastic, and I was really blown away that um, the designer had went through um, you know the extra effort to make this mission not just feel like a rehash of the previous mission. Um, that the puzzles were completely different. Um, I encountered a giant squid on this one, and uh, I don't know. There was something just really uh, surprisingly good about it. Oh, and the other thing is, um, I found out that. Um, if you successfully finish the mission, and I'm going to ruin ruin something for our listeners, so go now's a good time to go out play Cutthroats if you intend to ever do it. Uh, this is a really frustrating part of the game. If you don't witness a conversation, this is this goes back to your your um, your hatred of games that play out in real time, um, <laughs> adventures that play in real time. Um, if you don't witness the conversation between two NPCs and then basically footpad one of them back to his business, um, your throat gets slit after you've successfully finished the game. Um, and oh. Yeah, it's, it's like a terrible Deus Ex Machina kind of ending. Um, mm. But you basically, you, you, know, you successfully scuba dive, get the goals, getting back up, and says, you are laying in your bunk dreaming of all of your riches. When you suddenly feel a knife against your neck and in your throat is slit, there must have been a conspirator on board. And it turns out, oh. yeah, five minutes into the game, if you if you miss this conversation, you're basically screwed. Oh, so do you learn that the hard way, or I learned that the very very hard way. I learned it after five days of gameplay. Oh, oh, hell. Yeah. So thankfully, I was one of the save early, save often kind of adventure gamers, and I was able to go back to an early save to fix that. But yeah, it took me a long time to even figure out where this conversation was happening, and kind of in a back alley down the street. Hmm. So I. Well, that's kind of neat. Yeah, it was it was cool. Um, it was it was like a very annoying way to end the game. But it, it, when I when I actually went through it in the proper linear order, all of a sudden, I'm um, like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, there's somebody cons- conspiring to steal our treasure on the uh, scuba diving team, and you know he's going to kill me. So it was it was a really good game. Uh, other than that, uh, did I play anything else? Um, you know what? I don't think so. I, uh, 
I don't think I did. I played, um, I read uh, the latest episode, or <laughs> too much coffee today. I read the latest issue of Retro Gamer, which is, do you know that magazine at all? Yeah, I do. I've read one or two. They yeah. don't really speak my language sometimes. They cover so many platforms that I've never cared about. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very UK heavy. They tend to cover the ZX yeah. Spectrum a lot and uh, C64 quite a bit. They had an Amiga heavy uh, issue recently, which um, I wasn't an Amiga owner as a kid, but I did um, I did become an owner as an adult, and um, it does an amazing job of covering these games that I played DOS ports of, but I never played the original Amiga versions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can I can say the Amiga. Um, issue of Retro Gamer is totally worth reading because it gives some really good um, kind of background info on Bitmap Brothers, um, gives some background info on the company that did, I think it's called Sensible Software. They did Cannon Fodder and some of the games we've talked about previously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they did some sports games. Yeah, exactly. They did Sensible, Sensible Soccer, which is supposed to be amazing. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did a little-known game that I think is one of the greatest games of all time, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's called Sensible Train Spotting. No. <laughs> what like is it about? Is it about like paying attention to train schedules and stuff? It is literally you're watching trains come by in front of the screen and you're writing down their train numbers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh gosh, it sounds like the worst, <laughs> most terrible idea ever. And I and I honestly think it's one of the funniest, best games I've ever played. For I think it's a DOS game actually. Oh, that's awesome. Did you ever uh, re- watch the movie or read the book, Trainspotting? Oh, hell yeah. I've watched the movie. I never got a chance to read the original book, though. Oh, that's a it's a good book. I watched the movie, and I, I guess I liked it. It's a very unpleasant movie. And yeah, I, it's pretty heavy. And then I read, I think I read about 90% of the book, and I just couldn't go on. It's so depressing. I oh, just couldn't no. go on. But it's a very stylish book. It's a very good book. I just couldn't get all the way through it. Oh, yeah, the movie the mo- talks the about like, the squalor of society. Yeah. yeah. I remember there's a part. It's like it was just. It just like crushed me. There's a part where t- I think the character Tommy dies in it. He's like a. He he develops AIDS and he dies because his kitten. Uh, he hasn't cleaned the cat's litter box enough, and he he basically acquires this. You know, he has AIDS, and the kitten's poop kills him. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. I guess I blocked that out of my memory. <laughs> it's like a horrible, like depressing end to this character who you, you you really you know want to like in the movie. So yeah, I watched that movie several times. Oh, okay. Well, I, I think I don't know if it was the movie, but it was certainly the book that uh, that uh, introduced me to the what train spotting actually means, which is literally like watching the trains and writing down when they go by. Like I don't know why there's a name for this or why it's a hobby. Yeah, okay. Can like I... a mania. It is. <laughs> oh, my God. I, uh, okay, I feel like so nerdy. About two years ago, I don't know what what took me with this, but I all of a sudden started watching, like, train spotting videos on YouTube. And, there are videos of it. Oh, yeah. This is like a, a – it's, like it's like a world-recognized hobby. Um, I all of a sudden, like, got perversely interested in train movement and – I started watching these like YouTube videos and guys like here's like a, a General Electric CTX 450 going down uh, a little known curve around back of my house and then there's like you know it's 45 minute of video of a train passing and then there's like 200 comments of like check it, check out the train's uh, manifest or consist or something like oh did you notice that it's like CTX 442 is loaded on that what's it doing there 
<laughs> Snore. Yeah, exactly. So for, for a week of my life, I, I very much considered uh, sitting outside of my apartment and watching the uh, wa- watching the train numbers and taking note of them. Yes, I had a very, very exciting life in those days. Oh, man. Well, uh, my parents' house where they live today, just north of Toronto, and uh, my uh, bedroom faced the backyard, and just behind our backyard, we had train tracks where freight trains would go by oh, a wow. few times every day. And right when we moved into the house... Uh, around 1991, I hated that. It really freaked me out. Like it would make the the house vibrate <laughs> slightly, it would make these noises. Yeah. But uh, I and I couldn't sleep when it would come by. It would wake me up. But it came became so soothing, and I loved it so much. Having the trains back there, I would. <laughs> why I would watch them. I would sit there and watch them go by. One time, uh, I remember in the winter, it had to make some kind of an emergency stop this oncoming train, and so it was hitting the brakes. And there were these like 30 foot showers of sparks coming out oh, of either side of the yeah. front. So cool. That, I, so I, I funny. I, I like I, my girlfriend and I used to live in an apartment that had the train tracks, yeah, right across the street, and we saw the same thing. We all of a sudden saw this like massive shooting of sparks everywhere. I'm like, well, you know, the the good news is, you know, if if we do die from this train accident, it'll happen quick. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh End man. Uh, I've just outed myself as a potential train spotter. Okay. I so... think we both have now. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, um, I'm gonna. I, I didn't really play much this week, so I can't really speak to what I've been playing. But do you want to introduce our main topic? Okay, sure, sure. So at very long last, our, I'm happy to announce that our main topic this week is multiplayer games. And so we're going to talk a little bit about er, early and earlier multiplayer games. But um, the, the the varieties of multiplayer, I would say, kind of get more interesting the further in time you get, the more recent in time you get. Definitely. So. I don't know about you, but I have a few stories about the olden days and then uh, more more real story stories as uh, we get uh, closer to the modern day. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty much where I'm at. I, I actually struggled to find any example of, uh, of me playing a game over a modem um, with, that was not over TCP IP, like a direct connect modem or null modem. It was really, really hard for me to drum up any memories of that. Oh, I just have a couple of those, but uh, why don't we start even further back, I suppose. Um, sure. Do you recall what the first the first game, or uh, approximately the first game you might have played multiplayer would have been? Uh, you know what, I would, it, this, this will barely qualify as a computer. Um, the first multiplayer game I would have played would have been on the Mattel Intellivision. Do you know, it's kind of a console oh. slash computer? Oh, yeah, yeah, I had neighbors who had that. I would go over and play them. That was a really good console. It was a console, yeah, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was It was really weird because it actually had a computer add-on um, where you could actually attach a keyboard and stuff to it. So it was a really bizarre ah. machine. Uh, we had, yeah, we had the computer add-on. But me and my sister, uh, Catherine, I love you to death. You, you were the first person I ever played a multiplayer game with. Um, we played a game called Snafu or what? became Nibble or any of those other future snake-like games. Um, ah. Yeah, it was a multiplayer uh, snakes game where you chase your partner around the screen and try to bite their ass off. And every time you bite a bit of the snake's tail off, um, it becomes your tail becomes longer, etc., etc. And the funny thing is, um, when we were kids, our parents wouldn't let us play the television on the big TV because they thought it was going to burn in the screen. And... Um, so they gave us a tiny little Zenith black and white TV to play it on. And we didn't know 
that the snakes were supposed to, we didn't know the game was supposed to be in color. Um, mm-hmm. It was supposed to be red snake versus blue snake versus something. Actually, I think it supported four player even. Uh, it was pretty ahead of its time. Um, a four player, like two, two, I think it was like two um, human players versus two computer players. And um, yeah, we would just like chase each other for hours. And then I remember this one day we got a color TV finally. I think I got one at a garage sale, you know, for 10 bucks or something, something cheap. Uh, tiny little color TV. And we also realized it was Red Snake versus Blue Snake. And I was just blown away um, because I thought it was like Gray Snake versus slightly darker Gray Snake. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, me and my sister played the shit out of that. And another television game called Frog Bog, um, which is really weird because uh, I don't know if I can call it competitive but you basically were two frogs on the screen um, and you could jump from lily pad to lily pad snapping these dragonflies and the flies out of the air and it was really, really, really fun. And I can't explain why because there was no way of winning the game. There was no way. All you do is rack up points in the top corner of the screen. Um, But my sister and I played the living crap out of Frog Dog. What about you? I think... I think that the first multiplayer games I might have played would have been on my very first computer, the Compact Desk Pro 8086. Yep. Um, we, I, I, I don't know who we got that from or who we got this huge box of uh, five and a quarter inch floppies from with a bunch of uh, pirated games and other freeware stuff on them. But uh, right. amongst those discs were two game show games by Game Tech, which were Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, so uh, these were in in the glorious uh, four color CGA graphics with um, uh, so they they were um, hot seat games, I guess you would say, where yes. you know each each person takes their turn to go next, and so the Jeopardy one uh, was pretty uh, self explanatory. I guess that one, like everyone, you could have up to three players, and each person would get a keyboard key, and you had to press your key to buzz in when a question was shown, and then you would have to type it in, and it had no tolerance for Canadian spelling, nor for any typos. Uh, and if you played with any NPC computer-controlled characters, they would invariably either not buzz in, or they would buzz in and not know the answer, and just not say anything, or they would type it, like, uh, inhumanly fast. That's correctly. Awesome. So it was just kind of a binary sort of a thing, whether they get the answer or not. It was very annoying playing with uh, with uh, computer-controlled characters. And, of course, you know, me being, like, seven or eight years old, by the time I was any good at the game whatsoever, I still didn't know crap about the world, so... Yeah, I, I was going to say, Jeopardy sounds like a terrible game for, like, a seven-year-old. It most certainly is, but uh, I, I like the technology, and I like buzzing in, and I like that you could choose your character, and all the characters look kind of disheveled and wrong, so I enjoyed <laughs> that aspect of it as well. Uh, the Wheel of Fortune one was a little bit better, because you got to take turns, you would... Uh, spin the wheel and then have to uh, guess a letter or you would buy a vowel or whatever and uh, try to guess the uh, word puzzles and you would earn money and try not to get the bankrupt thing. Um, I'm trying I seem to remember... to remember playing that one, but I might have played like the Game Tech Nintendo NES version of that. Yeah, there were some decent uh, NES uh, games as well. And uh, my later, uh, not much later, uh, multiplayer and much superior multiplayer experiences were certainly on the NES um, I think the one that kind of stands out in my mind best of all, I played many, many multiplayer games, some of them real-time together and sometimes uh, in Hot Seat, but the one that stands out most of all was a game called Anticipation. You oh. ever heard of this one? No, I haven't played that one. Okay, so Anticipation, it's pretty much like Pictionary, where uh, you uh. it 
It's uh, it has kind of a board that looks a lot like Trivial Pursuit, and depending on what number your piece, or sorry, what color your piece lands on, that will dictate the category okay. of the drawing, where it'll be like science or history or uh, location or something like that. And then it will slowly draw this little simple vector drawing. Um, kind of looks like a logo. Oh, you're watching the, walking the watching the turtle move around on the screen, sort right. of. And then you would buzz in, and you would have to spell it out, of course, with like the alphabetical alphabet A B C D E is the order that it was in. It didn't look anything like a keyboard key uh, a keyboard right. uh, orientation. And uh, it was yeah, kind of halfway between like Pictionary and and Trivial Pursuit in that way. And the ob- the objective was to uh, get one of each color to go up to the next level, and then whoever goes up all three levels uh, is the winner. So it's oh. a really, really good game, and I think I must—I think I'm going to have to use this for our episode art this time. It had the corniest uh, art on the front of the box of this like wholesome white '80s family wearing like uh, <laughs> uh, these horrid sweaters and smiling uh, disturbingly. <laughs> it's a really, really, really good game. The only frustrating thing about it really was having to type words with your uh, Nintendo uh, gamepad. On those stupid. Uh, oh yeah, keyboards. that was always that was always terrible. Uh, and yeah, it was bad in Jeopardy too, as I recall. Having That's to right. That exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I seem to um, remember playing. I seem to remember playing um, Wheel of Fortune specifically on some sort of CG. It was CGA, right? Uh, when I played it, it certainly was CGA. Yeah, I think. And to uh, Vanna White looked like she'd been CGA hit by lightning. System. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vanna White looked like she got hit by lightning, and she had this like red beehive sort of, as I recall. Yeah, it was it was pretty wonky looking. That's awesome, but a good game. Yeah. Well, why don't we? Do you want to alternate, perhaps? Sure. Um, I got, I've got, got I've next? got another really early uh, one that I just thought of actually. Um, mm. I I don't know what to call this um, single player. I would call it single player hot seat multiplayer, <laughs> which makes okay. no sense. Uh, nope. This would be when I was in grade five, um, our little schoolhouse. We went to a school that had under 100 kids. It was really, really, really small kind of rural school. Um, and if any, hopefully some of our uh, listeners will remember this, this was something, I think it was particular to North America, um, due to Apple computers uh, kind of sort of uh, helping computers get into schools by selling them cheaper. Almost every school in North America had a little Apple IIe crammed in the back corner of the classroom. Um, at some point, um, someone will have an Apple IIe in their life. And in grade five, it was stuck in the very corner of our classroom, but it was considered to be like kind of the most valuable um, asset that the school owned other than its bus. So you weren't really allowed to uh, use it whenever you wanted to. So what our teacher did, she was just my favorite teacher in the whole world. She would put a hat out, and everyone would write their name down on a, on a piece of paper, stick it in the hat, and there were roughly 30, 31, 32 kids in our class. And you would have a 1 in 30 chance of getting to pull your name out of the hat and get to play on the Apple IIe at lunch that day, um, which was like high honors. So um, my experience was uh, there was this kid in our class named Carl. I'll omit his last name. Uh, who uncannily came up three or four times in one month, and I like I, it's not possible. So I we we started yell, you know saying that he was a cheater, that he was lying, all this stuff, and 
my first experience was playing King's Quest II, and I didn't get to play it because Carl kept getting on the computer before anybody else, like three or four times, and I, I didn't get called once that month, so I was really, really mad. So what we would do is all crowd around the Apple IIe, and then just, and Carl would be at the keyboard, and we would just, like, yell stuff at him to t- type into the parser. <laughs> <laughs> and so there would be like five or six of us, you know, yelling like, pick up Trident. No, open the mailbox. No, like try to eat the witches. I'm pretty sure this was King's Quest too. Try to eat the witches, um, like uh, gingerbread house, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and we, we had like such great times. Um, uh, just, just, we, I had no idea how an adventure game worked. I didn't realize, you know, that you were on a quest to solve something. I just knew that you should tr- try everything that everyone's yelling at you to put in. So it was like multiplayer of a kind. Um, you know, we as kids didn't know that, you know, the idea behind uh, adventure games is that you, you know, solemnly sit there as a, a single player and kind of grind your logic through for the next several months. Uh, our idea was like, this is automatically multiplayer. And then they get to the point where um, we get so sick of Carl uh, hogging the machine that, you know, we would... We did things like um, I traded my lunch once for someone's turn on the Apple <laughs> IIe. And I remember, like, bargaining, like, really hard bargaining. Like, I had this, like, crappy thermos lunchbox. And I would, like, I would like you know, open up my box and be like, okay, you know, I'm offering this and this and this. You know, my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a bottle of milk, and, you know, my Apple for turn on the Apple IIe today. No takers? Okay, I'll come back with something better tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, so I that was that was my first real um, multiplayer experience, and also the first adventure game I ever played in my life. I'm pretty sure. Uh, other than that's quite something. Yeah, uh, and I when I say play, I mean watch somebody else play and yell stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about you? Oh, this actually reminds me of going over to friends' houses to play uh, adventure games in a similar fashion. And I do remember going over to uh, one guy's house after school one day on my bike, uh, and he wasn't accepting enough of my recommendations of what to do, so I basically (laughs) did the Eric Cartman, screw you, I'm going home, so I went home. (laughs) I think the fewer of you there are uh, offering your instructions, the more you take offense when they're not (laughs) implemented. Yeah, of course. It's so, kind of it's so a... funny how kids, yeah, we, we, I also had the same sort of feeling, like, you know, it was basically like there was a one in five chance that he was going to take my, 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 my command seriously, more seriously than the other kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so next on my list, I have another DOS game, one that I'm quite sure that you will have heard of called Battle Chess. Oh, hell yeah. This one. This is such a cool game. So this game, it's really, it's just chess. All it is is chess, yep. but the uh, players on the chessboard look like real humans. Like they're little, they sort of look like little Sierra animated characters and uh, people and monsters and uh, kings and knights and peons and stuff like that. Yeah, it was very fantasy, around... fantasy kind of drawn, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. And so the the real fun was uh, getting these uh, your the opposing teams to interact with each other by trying to take a piece. You know, you take a piece with one uh, by moving your piece on top of somebody else's. And so it would play out this animation that would show combat between the two pieces. And it's not like it would uh, it would circumvent the rules of chess in any way. It wasn't controllable where you're uh, where someone who lands on your square uh, is going to lose to you. They they will they're guaranteed to take your square but it plays out just this little combat animation and they were all kind of humorous uh and, yeah they were uh, a little bit gory uh there i think it was the rooks or something that were the cat no like yeah the castle rook guys yep uh they look like a castle but then they turn into this like 
big brick monster, this kind of lumbering golem sort of a thing that would <laughs> smash people or it would eat some people. And so it had a great variety of animations, basically a different animation for each type of uh, piece versus another category of yeah. piece. And so it didn't make me any better at chess because it was really, unfortunately, probably more fun to force yourself to lose than it was to actually beat somebody. Exactly. So that's and basically it was what a, I did. It was like what... Uh... I could be confusing with Star Wars Battle Chess, but wasn't it in, like, high res, like 640 by 480 or something? Oh, so there was a Star Wars Battle Chess later on. No, actually, I think it was just called Star Wars Chess. I don't think that was Star in Wars the Battle Chess. Chess series. There was one called Battle Chess 4000 or something like that yes. later on, which I never played, but I saw in magazines, and it looked really enticing because that one was in Super VGA, and it okay. had these highly stylized-looking Star Trek sort of, uh, like, lasery pieces. Yeah, so the original uh, that, Battle Chess was, was low res then. Yeah, I don't know if it was higher res than CGA, because I never played it higher than CGA. Oh, right. But the, the graphics and animations were just awesome. They were so funny. Did you ever hear of a game called Chess Maniac 5 Billion and 1? No. What's this? <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope one of our listeners knows that this game it is so... There was like a period in the 90s where all of a sudden people started to like make games that are making fun of other games and mm. it was basically yeah somebody making fun of like Kasparov's Gambit making fun of Battle Chess making fun of like yeah, Chess Master yeah Chess Master and like it was basically it, look it up if you have a chance right now look it up because um, Chess Maniac 5 Billion and 1 has some of the best like cover art I've ever seen on a game and um, it's basically the same thing as Battle Chess, crazy animations, except it has, like, you know, a belly dancer instead of a queen, and it was it was just bizarre. And I remember as a kid wanting it so bad because it came on 14 diskettes or something outrageous. And the, uh, oh, I'm looking it up right now. It's a National Lampoon game made that's by right. Spectrum Holobyte. Yeah, it was Spectrum Holobyte. Oh, I forgot it was National Lampoons. And I don't know, it just has, like, this, this like um, Doctor uh, Doctor Brain kind of character on the front of the box, and it's just hilarious. Yeah, this is really funny. <laughs> oh, so, this looks great. Yeah, um, sorry, not a multiplayer thing. Sorry to de derail us, but uh, you just immediately made me think of that because I didn't get a chance to play much Battle Chess um, because you know my friends were the only ones that had it. They had it on some compilation CD that came with eight or ten games, and. Um, they totally did not want to play that. They were more into uh, playing NHL 95, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, so... Uh, all right, your turn. Yeah, I'm trying to think of where to go next to try to follow a somewhat fairly close historical... You know, around the same time that you'd be playing Battle Chess, what would I be playing? Um, King's Quest Two for sure. Um, you know what? My next natural move is probably going to be towards SimCity. This is another way of defining multiplayer, because I think we should be... I think one of the thing, nice things is we can be pretty loose with what we mean by multiplayer. Um, sure. I um, I did this thing, which I thought was really fun. SimCity had... Uh, do you remember the terrain editor built in... I don't know if you're a SimCity fan or not. Uh, really? Just the first one, and yeah. never again. Yeah, the first the did first it, one had... Uh, did it have a terrain editor? I don't remember. Did. Or I don't remember using it. Well, you could at least um, you could at least save your map, um, save it as, like, um, you know, save your map. And the cool thing was you could save it to a disk. Um, so one of the things I would do is actually save my, like, really hilarious maps. For instance, you know, I'd set up a, I'd set up a town just on the verge of meltdown, and, uh, you know, I'd set the nuclear reactor up route really, really close to town and then start a fire near it. 
Uh, of course. <laughs> and then I'd give it to a friend, and our, <laughs> yeah, what our friends would do, we, we would just trade maps back and forth at school. And it was totally a multiplayer experience, except, you know, we'd have to go, it's almost like a play-by-email kind of thing, play-by-mail, um, to see, like, here's what the hilarious thing I did this week. And SimCity was really good for that. Um, it was really fun way of just, I'm pretty sure it came with a train editor on the same disc or, or on a separate disc. Um, and uh, I, I love that. It was SimCity was one of my favorite games uh, for, for that reason. Uh, what I'm wondering about whether the train editor. I wonder whether the train editor might have been an add-on. Or it might have been later. Yeah, you know what? It might have been an add-on that I might have gotten. Um, I don't remember. Yeah, I remember there's a few. SimCity got um, uh, SimCity 2000 got something called the Skirk, the um, Sim, SimCity Urban Renewal Kit, um, and the Skirk hmm. would allow you to actually ma- modify map tiles, which was pretty cool. You could actually put it in your own hmm. custom map tiles. Um, oh, like the, the, the graphics of the tiles, yeah, you mean? Yeah, you could actually change oh, okay. the whole graphics, which was really, really cool. Um, I, at least I, I, I seem to remember that's what the Skirk was about. Um, so. Okay. I remember seeing in stores for the, I guess it was for the original SimCity, like uh, graphics packs where you could have like a, oh, yeah. a Chinese one and a future one. I never got them. Oh, I, I always wanted those. I saw them at the back of the Maxis catalog, but I could never find them in store. Oh, I always saw them in stores, but they were like 40 bucks each or 30 bucks oh, each yikes. or something. It didn't seem Holy worthwhile cow. to me. Well, I know I know a little bit about the story of SimCity, and I know it was one of those slow starter games. It basically sold nothing for its first year or two, um, mm. and it took a long, long time before it became profitable. And then it kind of exploded at some point. Um, I can't remember was it was it Maxis or Broderbund that published the first SimCity? I think it must have been Maxis. I, uh, I really don't remember if it was anything other than Maxis. That's the only one I've ever remembered. You know what? I actually think it might have been Broderbund that published it. Um, mm. Because I remember that uh, on my, I don't know if you saw the original SimCity box. It was great. It had like Godzilla on the front with a bunch of like knobs you could turn. Um, yeah, or that was uh, was that the first? That box, was the first or was one. That a subsequent box. Okay, was, I, I know it well. Yeah, I, I love that box, and I remember having a Broderbund logo in the bottom corner. So it must have been a Broderbund game for at least a little while before Maxis became its own thing. I can't. I honestly can't remember. Hmm. Let me see. Blah, 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 blah. Wikipedia says Broderbund declined to publish the title when Wright proposed it. Oh, weird. But finally, I don't know. This is too long for me to read now. TLDR. Let's move on. TLDR. There you go. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's your next game at the list? What do we have next? Okay. You mentioned play by email, which is something I didn't do until... Later. Okay, I'm going to put that one off to later then, sure. just to keep a chronology here. Um, so, one that I really, really liked that uh, was kind of in the vein of Battle Chess, but took it a, a step further, was a game called Dark Legions by SSI. Oh, man. I'm so you know this glad one, you... Huh? I love Dark Legions. Nobody talks about Not it. Not a lot of people do. Yeah, I'm surprised you know it. That's great. I love this game. This game was a lot like chess. Yeah, I don't remember too much what the overworld was like because I played this ma- mainly for, like I mentioned before with Battle Chess, that it just obeys the, the rules of chess and there's nothing you can really do to change the outcome of a battle. That's right. Whereas with Dark Legions, you would put your uh, character on top of somebody else, like your piece on top of someone else's piece, and then it would go to this top-down uh, combat, sort of a Street Fighter Two style combat thing exactly. where uh, both players would control each of their characters. And so there were little teeny tiny ones with daggers, and there were big monsters and big knights and stuff like that. And I remember the animation character. and the graphics were incredible. 
extremely, extremely good. And um, they actually, that game had, not only did it have a great soundtrack, but it had lots of digital sound effects. And to my great delight, all the sound effects were in WAV files. And oh, so, you're kidding. <laughs> oh, I got maybe I'll put this at the end of the show today. I wrote a song that used a whole bunch of the, the voice samples from that game. Oh my God, I can't wait to hear this. I'll stick this at the end. I was proud of how this song turned out. And I always uh, credited the source, even though I, I stole their sounds mercilessly. But uh, this was a really good game. It had exactly the same appeal as something like Street Fighter II. Um, yeah. I don't remember what the objective of the game was overall, whether it was to clear the pieces off the Yeah, it basically board was. You, it was, it was a... like your side versus their side, and you could eventually uh, clear the board, yeah. Okay, and I think that there might have been different terrains based on where you That's engage right. the person in combat, and so maybe that would affect the specialties or the shortcomings of whatever character you chose. Some of them were big and strong, some of them had range, some of them had speed. So that was uh, quite a good bit of fun. I remember playing that one with my two Gravis gamepads, which had the oh. Y-splitter cable, so Those... it was like a two-button each kind were of they, game. Were they the white Gravis gamepads with like the multicolored buttons on them? Yes, they were. Oh, those are the best controllers I ever used on the PC. Those controllers lasted, I want to say they lasted me like 10 years. Yeah. They were just so reliable. The only thing that ever went wrong was that I they had this little screw hole in the middle of the, the directional the pad joystick. where you can screw in this little joystick, and I snapped it off on both of them by accident because oh. I was gaming too hard. But I never <laughs> missed it. <laughs> it was didn't exactly improve the situation having those little joysticks. So they were such reliable products. I love those joysticks like crazy. Yeah. So that's I, Dark Legions. I, I remember my friends got one with their, their sound blaster or something like that, and I remember being blown away by it um, because it was the first time I ever saw a computer using a Nintendo or Super NES-style uh, gamepad, which I was just in love with. Yeah, that's right. They were all either Atari-style or like Flight, six, flight Stick-style before exactly. that. So it was a, a big, important step. Yeah, do you um, do you remember that? Um, you'll probably get to this. I think you might have already talked about this in one episode. Gravis sold a joystick that was black and it had red buttons on it. Um, yeah, it, that was my first one. Oh man, that was such a good joystick, and it had like a spongy kind of like um, like handle. It was so well built. Yeah, it was phenomenal. That lasted me many many years as well. Oh, um, did you ever p- play? Because Dark Legion sounds to me like it was based on a game called Archon. Did you ever play Archon? Oh, uh, very briefly. It was very similar to that. Was yeah. that a was that a Peter Molyneux game? You know what? I don't know. I I know it was published by EA. It's very possible it was Bullfrog, but I don't know if it was actually Peter Molyneux himself. Um, it it definitely has Peter Molyneux's style or flair for you know good versus evil, um, and black versus white, um, mm-hmm. and. It's for anybody who hasn't played Archon. I think it's it's basically just a very simplified version of of um, Dark Legions, which is you've got um, it's it's like chess except that um, where you, if you engage some your opponent on a black piece and you're a black piece, you get uh, upgraded powers and your opponent's weakened on that on that because they're a white piece. And that's so, a great idea. Yeah, it's brilliant, and it's a very simple modification of chess. And then it adds, of course, the arcade element, which is as soon as you go into battle, all of a sudden it drops down into this 2D over, overhead uh, shooter view where you're, you're basically running around with your knight who can either, um, who can just basically spear people or you're, if you're the, I think if you're the, um, the queen uh, kind of character, you can shoot laser bolts and you've got like kind of a, a very quick 
uh, recharged to that. So it's it's brilliantly well built, um, and Archon is amazing. I know some people have, have been in love with that game forever, and it had a sequel or two too. But I'm I'm very sure Dark Legions was basically just a, a variation on the same theme. Yeah, no question. I just looked up Archon. I don't see any mention of Peter Molyneux. It really does feel like a game of his, though, but it was made yeah. by a studio called Free Fall Associates and published oh. by Electronic Arts. Oh, that was so. that's right. That's back in the days when EA did these amazing album cover style uh, uh, boxes, so it's kind of in this folder yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah, 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 beautiful kind of M.C. Escher sort of a looking yeah, black exactly. and white box. It's a fantastic, fantastic game, too. All right. Hmm. Um, wow. So what did we just talk about? Dark Legions. Dark Legions came out on C. Did you have a CD or the floppy version? It was the floppy version. Ah, yeah. I remember that game came out eventually on CD, and I think it was voiced at some point. Like, it actually had a lot of data on it. Yeah, and the floppies had voices. Did it? Yeah, that's right. But I... Yeah, you're right. But not for all the characters, yeah. or I can't remember how it worked. I, oh, I, the only I, way I ever knew it was just everyone had a few little uh, sound clips here and there. Yeah, that's that's basically what I think. Maybe the CD only added uh, wavetable um, red book audio or something like that. I can't remember what it was. Okay. Um, yeah, but I just specifically remember getting really, really excited because when I was, I think it was 20 or something, I came across the CD version of Dark Legions at a flea market, and I was just like, oh my god, I've waited years for this. Um, oh, cool. Didn't know it existed. Yeah, it's 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 kind of in the days when. Strategic Simulations Inc. was kind of falling apart uh, piece by piece. If I remember correctly, it's an SSI game. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, next up in my list is, uh, this is, again, I don't mean to jump into console territory too much, but um, I have to mention it because it's just so seminal in my memory. Um, Tetris uh, multiplayer over the Game Boy, Game Boy Link. Did you ever have a Oh, yeah. Oh, sure, sure. I didn't use it often. I don't remember why I didn't use it often. I think I compared high scores more than playing head-to-head, but I did use that a few times. Uh, it was, there was just one year, I think it was in grade 6 or grade 7, where finally everyone in my class had a Game Boy, or well, at least the kids that mattered had Game Boys. And <laughs> we, uh, since Tetris was a pack-in, uh, it was also one of the very, very few games that supported multiplayer via the link cable. And um, I'll never forget, like sitting in my grade six classroom at lunchtime with, you know, a bunch of kids sitting around us and people yelling out like, <laughs> oh, this is, I feel like embarrassed saying this. It's like, if you got, um, if you got a Tetris on your screen, basically what it would do would take those four rows and actually transmit them over the link cable to your opponent's screen. So that it would actually fill up their side. So the, goal, mm-hmm. the goal was to basically screw up your opponent. And, and I'll never forget. We like, it became this thing yelling to other kids, you got tetricized. <laughs> Didn't they say that in the in the commercial? I think so, yeah. I think it was in the commercial. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Yeah, so we were like, we, we thought that was the greatest thing on Earth. And um, the other game we played via Link Cable on the Game Boy uh, was this other game called F1 Race. Um, oh, I had that. Did you? Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah I had that. And it came with the four-player Link right. Hub. Yeah, the, the the little gray box multi-tap thing, which is, you know, four-player, considering, you know, these are like basic Game Boys with a one megahertz set 80, or even possibly slower than that, um, blows my mind still. No kidding. I don't think I ever played it with all four players, and I'm sure I bought it because it was advertised that you could play with four players, but I never, I don't think I ever played it with more than one other person. Oh, we, well, I got so lucky. In grade seven, um, I think all of us kids decided that we were all going to buy it this one weekend. And we came back to school on that Monday, and I remember um, 
in our in our school hallways, like there were these little nooks where you could kind of just hang out during lunch hour. And there's four of us playing F1 race via link cable. And I just remember like thinking, this is the greatest thing on earth, and I'll never get laid for the rest of my life at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good game too. I played it single player a whole bunch just because I enjoyed it so much. It reminded yeah. me a lot of pole position. Exactly, and I think from from what I understand, F1 Race was basically just a simplified version of F Zero, which was out on the Super Nintendo at the time. Oh, I never even uh, equated those two. It's it's possible. I'm just guessing, but the gameplay was so similar. You had like a little speed boost button. You had like. Um, you, you could go over these little speed-up uh, markers on the screen, kind of Mario Kart style. It was really, really good. Ah, I hardly remember it at all, even though I played it quite so much. <laughs> yeah, so uh, what's up next on your list? Okay, let's see. I could have beefed up my list more if I had added more console games, but I... I uh, yeah, that's my, that's my last part. console game before I offend, offend our, uh, our listeners. Sorry, listeners. All right, well, let's bring it back to PC Town then um, with the game Star Control. Oh, Did you play the first Star Control? You know what? I didn't get to the first Star Control until I was much older and I got it off GOG. Okay. I uh, I played this when it was brand new at a friend's wow. house. I had never heard of it before. Um, and this had a lot of uh, similarities to Dark Legions and I guess Archon as well, where yeah. you had kind of a Risk-style overworld map, and I believe the objective was to conquer it square by square or to conquer resource points or something like right. that. That's certainly not why I played that with my friend. The reason we played it was for what was known as Super Melee, where each <laughs> of you would choose a different uh, spaceship um, for a one-on-one dogfight. And it was extremely, as I mentioned, uh, I guess it was in our last one, it was extremely similar to this other game I had played called Space War, where there was a right. planet in the middle of the screen, and you would uh, shoot at each other, each with your uh, spaceships, and uh, the planet had gravity, and you could smash people into the planet, or you could shoot them down with your spaceships. So awesome. the graphics were extremely beautiful. Each of the ships had a primary weapon and a secondary weapon um, and were completely unique from each other that would uh, force you to think of all kinds of interesting strategies and to uh, know the strengths of your ship as well as the uh, strengths and weaknesses of whoever you were up against. And just like Dark Legions, there were big ships, uh, small ships and fast ones and sneaky ones and long range and short range. Um, one of the, the ones that I got really good with that totally infuriated my friends was a little Area 51-looking flying saucer by a race called the Aerilu. And uh, yes. it could stop on a dime. It could turn really quickly. And it had this little tiny pea shooter of a That's laser right. beam that was extremely short range. But its special move was that it could teleport to some random part on the map. And I think it was also immune to uh, gravity. Right. So... I got really good with that obnoxious little ship and would coax people into accidentally <laughs> smashing into the planet or uh, launching uh, little fighters that I could pick up to pieces with my little laser. So that was kind of the troll That's the troll hilarious. Ship. And so um, Super Melee made it to the sequel as well to uh, Star Control 2 and presumably to Star Control 3, which I really ought to try, but I never have. I should buy that on GOG yeah, uh, I, before I, long. I didn't get a chance to play 2 or 3 yet. Those are kind of... The, the, it's really funny, but I always thought of Star Control as one of those... I don't know, when I retire kind of games where, you know, some some magical day where I can sit down and just play it for two or three hundred hours and just get everything I can out of it because they're amazing games. Well, Star Control 2 is totally that. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll talk in more depth about this in some other episode. Cool. But that has just one of the most, like, BioWare, BioWare would be jealous of the universe that yes. Star Control 2 
puts out there. It I... is so many different races, like all of the ships that you could play in the Super Melee before, plus a whole bunch more, they all have just races of beings, and they all have these really outlandish, hilarious personalities, and uh, they all have their own theme music and their own art and their own motivations, yeah. and you find them either by chance or because you're directed to them by someone else. It is just one of the most captivating, mystifying, engrossing games I have ever played, and it's so, so likable. I, so... I, want, to, I, I want to say that the game has... Uh, I don't remember how many planets. It's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of planets uh, generated. And, and for anybody who, who's into Star Control or wants to know more, definitely listen to Joe Mastriani's um, episode on Star Control because he goes into enormous depth of how the game uh, Star Controls 1 and 2 were designed and how uh, how much kind of thought went into developing those races. And, and it's unbelievable that each race kind of had a personality, too. Very, very much so. Extremely, extremely well-written, really hilarious, well-realized uh, characters, and a great universe with, like, territories, and, oh, it, oh it's it's so great. Did you, you, I think you mentioned before, perhaps, playing um, Star Trek 25th Anniversary? Yeah. And do you remember how the copy protection in that game was, like, you had to find some some planet on a big, stupid oh, map? Oh, that's right, you had the, the little star chart, that's right. That's right. So basically, Star Control 2, you get to, like, visit every one of those planets. That's, that's the depth of it. Oh, Boy, man. did I hate that copy protection in that Star Trek game, though. That really pissed me off. Oh, it's terrible. I, I think I might have mentioned it um, on the episode uh, with, on piracy with Anatoly. as uh, one of the earliest games I remember actually seeing uh, a GIF file attached in the... Uh, pack so you could actually look at the star map. So so you'd actually have to quit the. This is this is so infuriating. You'd have to quit the game, load up a mm -hmm. GIF viewer, and then look at the star map. And so I ended up actually just copying the entire thing down on my off my screen onto a piece of paper, which was just mad. Oh, that's pretty laborious. Oh, it was I terrible. think I had a black and white photocopy of it, which is probably why I hated the copy protection so much because it's <laughs> hard to read on a photocopy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those bastards. It's like they don't want me to pirate their game or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's Star Control. Oh, that, that, we played in local co-op, by the way. That was usually with... Uh, we tried it with two keyboards, and as usual, the keyboard buffered overflows would keep us from playing properly, so we would either have one... We would usually have one person with a gamepad. Oh, that's actually a really good idea. So it was still very playable with a gamepad? Very playable with a gamepad, yeah. Wow. Maybe even preferable. Wow. If you had a good one. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Um, next up on my list, and speaking of keyboard mashing and combining joysticks, and uh, was Wacky Wheels, uh, which I mentioned mm -hmm. on the previous episode. Uh, Wacky Wheels had uh, was for anybody who doesn't isn't familiar with it. I can't imagine anybody who's not. Um, was a game released by Apogee in the '90s, which was basically a straight up ripoff of Mario Kart, and. Wacky Wheels, for, I don't know why. I can remember every single sound. You know, did you ever play Wacky Wheels when you were a kid? You know, I didn't really get into it. I loved Mario Kart, and okay. I figured that Wacky Wheels, when I tried it, was really just kind of a clone, and I never got interested in it. I found another kart game that I liked, which I'll mention after you tell your story. Oh, cool. Yeah, because the only reason I even played it is because I, uh, I didn't own a Super Nintendo, so I couldn't get any access to Mario Kart. And me and my sister played the living hell out of Wacky Wheels. This is this is really bizarre. My Amstrad 286 actually had it was not a game port. You know, a game port is what a 16 DIN or whatever those are called, a 16 pin um, 
kind of configuration on the back of the serial term. port, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. It it didn't really well. It was not a standard serial port, but it was it was something. It was in, a MIDI port. Yeah, exactly. It was a bizarre thing, but our computer never had one. Ours actually had a nine-pin like Sega Genesis port on the side of it. Um, which what, is, like literally a Sega Genesis port or yeah, something similar to? Yeah, it was similar to. It was compatible with Genesis controller. Um, Whoa. Yeah, an Atari-style like four-way or eight-way joysticks worked fine with it. Um, it was hmm. just like a generic Atari. I guess you'd probably call it an Atari port. Um, and it took, I think it accepted up to two buttons uh, or two, or, yeah, it was two buttons because the third Genesis button never works. Um and yeah, my sister and I, one person would be on the keyboard, the other person would take the um the gamepad attached to the side of the computer. Really unique to see on uh, on a two eighty six. And I'll never forget the sound of every time you pass somebody in um wacky wheels, like it would make the sound of like a I don't know, I think if you're like the elephant or the donkey or something, he'd make like this little donkey hee hawing sound and <laughs> we we I just fell in love with it. And I knew I knew it was a bad clone of Mario Kart, but the game was really, really playable. Um and uh I hats off to Apogee for doing a really, really solid clone of Mario Kart. Um and it was infinitely better than Scunny Kart, um, just to put this out there. Um the oh, and so did you play that split screen? Yes, uh, that was it. It had a split screen mode, which was really, really good. Hmm. Um, you know, not a lot of games other than I think Test Drive at the time. I not saw a lot of PC games with built-in split screen support, and it did it really fast, and and it worked really, really well on my. I think it was a. I honestly can't. It must have been on the 286 because we had the controller at that point. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I think uh, split screen must have just been like double the CPU power, more or less, in order to pull that off, so that is a really impressive feat to get that working reliably and quickly. Yeah, exactly, and it was, you know, it was really, I never did manage to get the full version of the game, so we only had one map we could play on, but we still played it for hours and hours and hours. Oh, I have so many memories of just milking the hell out of some shareware game, which was, that that was a horrible thing when a shareware game was too much fun, it was so much fun that you'd didn't even care whether you bought it? Yeah, exactly. Like, to be honest, I, d- I didn't get Doom, like, full registered version of Doom until two years later because uh, Doom Shareware, to me, was just amazing. Knee-deep in the dead, dead was perfect. Me too, I think. <laughs> that, that's going to be the next game I mentioned, too. Uh, but uh, before I do, I uh, the game that I played, the, I, I like this other kart game, which nobody else seems to have heard of or enjoyed. I think it was just called Kart Racer, K-A-R-T. Oh, no, um, I didn't hear that one. And it was, I don't even know, it must have had multiplayer, but I never played it in multiplayer because nobody else liked it. Everybody else was playing Wacky Wheels. <laughs> I really missed out by excluding myself from the whole Wacky Wheels uh, uh, clan. But um, this one, it had it had no power-ups, and it was more ro- modeled on reality, like the, okay. if you could call it, a sport of kart racing. So oh. I enjoyed that a lot more. Wow. It, had, uh, it was like, uh, I don't know, I won't go into too much detail because I don't remember it too well, but I enjoyed that a lot more. It was much more of a racing game than kind of an action combat racing. Okay, I see. So you, so you weren't, so you weren't like, yeah, throwing stuff at each other. Okay. Or dropping yeah, that's right. Over. No, it was more of a simulator, really, but it was third-person behind ah, uh, perspective. I, you know what? I might have actually seen this game, but I don't remember, you know, developing any interest in it. Yeah, I played the heck out of it, and I seem to have been the only one who, who ever remembered <laughs> it. I should look for it again. Cool. Yeah. But uh, as I mentioned, the next one on my list is going to be Doom. Oh, this was, awesome. This is such an important one because, 
Um, it wasn't the very first multiplayer game that I tried. The first multiplayer one I tried on a modem. No, was it a modem or a serial cable? I don't remember. But it, before that, I played one called Line Wars. Oh. Um, I'm, I guess I'm cheating because I'm going to talk about two now. But Line Wars, it was very much like uh, it looked like Elite or Wing Commander okay. or something, like a first-person ship combat one, and you would fight ship to ship. It was basically like Star Control, but uh, first person. Wow! So it That's... actually had like 3D geometry on the screen and stuff. Yeah, it was like uh, vector line drawings. Wow! Uh, li- line polygons, which looked really sharp. It was very cool. It was a lot of fun, and they had a, a one-player mode against uh, not just NPC. Uh, ships, but also against like uh, other kinds of ships that you wouldn't see in multiplayer. The multiplayer, as I recall, that's very cool. Was just head to head, so that was a cool one. Um, but uh, that's so that's the first game that I played where I looked at somebody else's screen, the guy right next to me, and I saw my ship on there, and I would press left on my keyboard, and I would see my character turning left oh, on his man. screen, and I'm like, oh my gosh, holy shit! I've never, I didn't think this was possible. That's, that that, um, that would have been mind blowing to me at the time. Oh, it's, yeah, of course, of course it was. And uh, more so with Doom, just because it looked that much more realistic and it had gravity and there were actual real people. And naturally, I would, like, turn my character towards uh, my uh, my uh, teammate and then look at his screen and then I would press down the control key to uh, <laughs> shoot my guns and I'm like, oh, look, I'm shooting right into my own face. Did you, out of curiosity, <laughs> did you play it over null modem, modem or IPX? I think I did null modem for... Line Wars, wow. but I did IPX, SPX for Doom oh, on a big, SPX. like, Oh, SPX, I almost forgot ring. that that was the other side of that protocol. That's really funny. Yeah, so that that's, uh, I did that at, uh, like, a LAN party at somebody's house. That's uh, amazing. A, a few times. So that was so much fun. And we would play co-op, but leave the damage on. And so that, of course, always turns into PvP and lots of laughing. <laughs> There's always a stray shot, which turns into the the on-purpose accidental stray shot, which turns into absolute uh, absolute monkeys throwing their bananas all over the house, kind of mayhem. Yeah, yeah, that was a really good times playing Doom. Oh, a, I, I remember remember seeing Doom on IPX. Actually, you know what? To be honest, um, Doom was the first game I ever saw someone use a network card for something. Um, prior to that, you know, the idea of a network card was totally just just confusing to me. I had no idea what what that would be for, what you could possibly use it for. Um, mm. And when I was 14 or 15, my, my uncle's best friend brought over two network cards, which he said cost him four or $500 a piece. Um, <laughs> you know, these were probably just a standard, um, oh, you know what? They were not 10-base tees. Um, do you remember, I think they were called BNC, um, B- BNC oh, Terminators yeah. or something? Yeah, that's right. I learned about those in school, but that's those were the like the T connector thing. Yeah, BNC yeah, you had a little Brit- British naval connector. Oh, because really? The British Navy is the one who made the technology. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really funny. Yeah, they were they were just like plain old like um, cable TV cable and um, yeah, coaxial cable. That's right. Yeah, coax, and then you'd have a little BNC terminator at at the end of each one, which is like look like a little T tap. And I remember mm-hmm. it took them hours. I think it took them four or five hours just to get these machines to see each other over the network. And mm-hmm. and he got these two going up, and then they loaded up Doom. And the first time I saw Doom, I was just, I my my jaw dropped because I, it was the first time I not only had saw something multiplayer, but it was also really fast. Um, it was not you know a, their their network stack that they wrote for Doom was very very good in my opinion. Um, I don't know somebody else yeah. could chime in, but I it, it was it was just so quick, um, and things just happened very immediately. 
Well, they had four-player multiplayer in that very old game, which wow. is just unheard of. That's crazy. I didn't realize they had up to four players at that point already. And four-player co-op, even. I mean, it's impressive enough to have four people on the screen and you can see each other moving. Yeah. But Doom, ha- Doom has how many monsters? And all four people could see the positions of those monsters that would be the same on everyone's computers, like including the projectiles being fired by the four players. Like, that's a hell of a lot of netcode for extremely slow networking technology. I kind of never really thought about how impressive that was until right now. Wow, my mind's blown, because I, I mm-hmm. seem to remember in the Doom, um, in the uh, book on Doom, Masters of Doom, that it took Carmack a while to get the networks back. I, for some reason, I think it became IPX, FPX only, and then much, much later, they submitted the TCP IP stack for Doom. I could be wrong. I don't remember. Yeah, I, it sounds. I remember. Sounds plausible. I remember that the networking was like a huge issue, uh, but once they got it working, it was just like, okay, this is what this game's all about. Hmm. Oh. Well, so say so says some people. I still prefer it single player, but I have a lot of trouble play, playing with people uh, co-op. I have trouble finding people who will play co-op with me. <laughs> uh, I, last time I played uh, Doom uh, was at work. Uh, I don't know, maybe six months, a year ago, and we were loading it up for for some educational purposes. And I said, well, since we're here, why don't we just have a quick game? And we ended up sitting there for four hours playing multiplayer. And it was just like, I, I had not had that much fun in a long, long time. Just three of us just laughing our heads off, yelling shit at each other across the table. It was great. Oh, that's beautiful. And uh, it hats off to Anatoly for, um, I think I seem to remember this, a year ago or so, Anatoly got the chance to play head-to-head deathmatch with John Romero himself at GDC. Oh, that's right, and he took pictures with him and stuff. How cool is that? Yeah. I'm sure he got his butt his butt handed to him by Romero. He's a <laughs> lifelong a dream. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So um, let me think. Um, I can't I can't top Doom. Um, we actually had in our uh, I'll talk about a really um, unknown game that's disappeared off the face of the earth. Maybe Macintosh Garden uh, would have a copy of this somewhere. It's an abandoned ware site specifically for Macs. Um, in grade eight or grade nine. Our school got a Macintosh lab, um, which was, you know, a big deal at the time because we were using Apple IIe's prior to that. And in the Mac lab, they got these, uh, got very costly, they got something called an Apple Talk network running. Um, and basically, all these Macintoshes came with built in network cards, but they only supported their own proprietary uh, network stack called Apple Talk. And the these were all connected. I believe Apple Talk worked by connecting connecting to each other via via um, actually like telephone cables, which is kind of bizarre. Um, hmm. Yeah, they were, or at least that's what I remember. They were really odd, like RJ. What is it? RJ nine? RJ eleven? Yeah, RJ eleven connectors. And they had this game called Mac Bolo. Have you ever heard of this by any chance? No. Oh, it was really really good. It was 16-player multiplayer, if you can believe that, in 1993 or 94. Um, and Mac Bolo was this tank game, if I remember correctly. You're just driving tanks around on this overhead top-down view, uh, shooting at each other, and you've got these bases that you can take over. I think the idea was kind of like a capture-the-flag phenomenon, or, or sorry, um, Team Fortress kind of thing. And mm-hmm. um, you'd be trying to take over your, all, all these bases. And Mac Bolo was amazing. Uh, I think... I remember reading at some point, um, this was years ago, I read about how the guy got 16 players simultaneously, which had never been done on a Mac network before. Um, And the guy said, like, me writing that network stack was like two years of work. Um, 
Oh. Yeah, just to get it to... Um, he had this complicated kind of system for sharing the player's position really, really fast. Um, and I remember uh, somebody's podcast talking about this, and I was just blown away by how much work went into, um, you know, ask anybody, even today, um, dealing with um, uh, network uh, networking is the hardest part of building any multiplayer game, period. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, I, I just... Yeah, I was just really blown away by that. And then hats off to the guy who designed and developed Mac Bolo to make that pull that off. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds very cool. Yeah, and it was it was just fun. I mean, we didn't manage sixteen people in the same room. I think there was like only eight nerds in our whole school. Um, and so during lunch hours, we would just basically just say, you know, kind of convince each other to go to the Mac lab and then close the door and then just go go nuts for you know forty five minutes before the next bell. <laughs> That's really cool. And over an RJ11 cable, like those are uh, those are pretty slow technology, very low quality, like copper wires, as I recall. Yeah, so and that's a lot of data to deliver in a timely fashion for so many nodes. Exactly, and I don't quite know how they were all networked together. I don't think there was anything like a router or a switch. Um, I think it might have had, basically, I think it actually had to send the data um, via daisy chain. So basically, if your and my computers are really far away from each other, it takes you know that much longer for data to get to you because it's been bouncing through other computers before it hit yours. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, pretty ah, amazing very stuff. Cool. Neato. All right, next on my list, this is... Oh, this is the the last DOS game I'm going to talk about now, and I'm going to make a reference to one later on, cool. but the last DOS game I will talk about is Quake. Oh, nice. So glad you brought yeah, it up. This was a such a good one. Yo, so you played this too, yeah? Oh, I got some good stories about this. So, so didn't we all. So uh, love this game. Um, another one of those games where the shareware was so good that I had no interest in the full product <laughs> until much later. And then I actually, oh, did I ever luck out that I still have this CD? Um, it published a CD, and it was odd because it was a, a CD full of shareware versions of their games. Oh. But you actually had to you had to pay for the CD. Um, Weird. And... So the CD had these unlockable... It had all the shareware games, and it had these unlockable versions of the full versions of the games. Oh, that's right. And you could phone in and get a code. That's right. Oh, that's, right. that's and so, so funny. That's right. So I have a, a floppy disk tucked into the uh, jewel case, which is labeled on the front Q-Crack, because it is the cracks for all of the uh, <laughs> uh, commercial versions of the games on this quick shareware CD. That's but, awesome. Um, and so, I mean, it's easy enough, it was easy enough even then to find pirated versions of id Software's games, but the reason that I had to have this CD version was because it had Trent Reznor's Red Book right. audio tracks for Doom's, uh, sorry, for Quake's soundtrack, which were really spooky. I mean, I think there was only one song which was music, and the rest was all just a bunch of really freaky yeah, sound effects and stuff, kind of, kind of for atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. So that was great to have. And, um... I have very good memories also of playing Quake, which if for the way that Quake played music was that it would just say, play Red Book audio track number three for this level. <laughs> um, and But it didn't really care which CD you had in there. So I would put in like a reggae CD or something and there would be these horrible, snarling, drooling monsters and playing this really happy, festive music. And it would loop the song over and over because that was the level's music. That was really funny stuff. Um, so I played this game multiplayer on modem, and this was probably the first game that I played on modem uh, pretty regularly, and maybe even the last competitive 
player versus player shooter that I ever really cared about. But I do recall using their uh, matchmaking lobbies. I think they had matchmaking lobbies. I don't remember how I connected with people exactly okay. or where I found other players. But um, I uh, found other people from Toronto to play with. And uh, sorry, I'm distracted now because my wife is here with an adorable little baby bird that I'm petting while I talk. Oh, can you give us a bird update? Birdie. Oh, bird update. Okay, let's interrupt my, my quake story for a, <laughs> a bird update. Okay, so, oh, we had an exciting uh, exciting revelation today. There are little white nostrils, uh, white rings around the nostrils of this bird, which suggests that it's going to be a female. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so uh, it looks much more like a budgie now. It doesn't look like the uncooked piece of uh, chicken breast <laughs> that it did earlier, and it doesn't look quite so much like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, which it looked like later on. It just looks like this little this little parrot, which is right now cupped. Oh, it's cupped in my wife's hand, and I'm kind of scratching my fingers under its neck and petting them on the scruffs. And it's extremely docile and tame, and very soft and sweet. Aww. So it's a nice activity to be doing while talking about exploding people with grenades. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, little bird! What a sweet little guy. So uh, matchmaking and quake. Then <laughs> I uh, recall being kind of an animosity between people who had different speeds of modems oh, and people who problem. through oh yeah, and people who through luck of the draw they had ISPs that would grant them a better ping time uh -huh. so there were some people that if you didn't have a ping of at least 250 milliseconds which is a quarter of a second then they would say no way are you playing with us or they would check the latency every now and then in the middle of the game and kick you immediately if your latency ever went above 250 or 300 or something like That's that right which is a funny thing to think about because nowadays, you know, I'll play World of Warcraft, for example, which is a game that isn't terribly important all the time to have, like, split-second communications. In that game, we're, like, upset if we don't get 30 millisecond ping. <laughs> so 250 for an action game which is, is a very archaic oh, sort yeah. of thing. And, and I think Quake actually implemented some network... Um, what's the word? And, uh, some network... Not anticipation code, but there's a word for this where it kind of a network prediction code. So it could kind of predict mm. where your character's supposed to be going because they expected to let latency would be a big issue. Oh, that's right. It did do stuff like that, which I think is what made me aware later on of something known as rubber banding, where oh. it would you would kind of lose. Oop, by a little bird <laughs> just rolled off of me. <laughs> it uh, would uh, somebody would lose connection, and the game would assume that they were still traveling in that direction. Oh, but then they yeah. would regain their direction, and suddenly they'd be somewhere else. They'd be they reset by fifteen all. feet. Yeah, that's right. So they would like be running forward, and then suddenly bounce back to where they were. So that was known <laughs> as rubber banding. I didn't know that it had a term. That's really funny. Oh yeah, yeah. That's they still use that one today. All right. Um, wow. And, and naturally, naturally, that that uh, term literally means lag. But nowadays, if you ask some kitty what lag means, they're like, "Oh, it's when your frame rate gets too slow." Uh, so that makes me want to smack people. That, that, yeah. So um, the only real uh, memory I have of playing Quake online with someone notable was uh, this was just before I started going to raves, and I was aware of a couple of Toronto DJs. And there was one that I liked who played hardcore techno called DJ Fubar, and I, by luck of the draw ended up playing Quake with him by total random chance. Oh, cool. And then we talked about it like half, half a year later, and we were like, oh, yeah, I remember you. I, you, were the, you were the purple guy. I'm like, yeah, I was, you were the brown guy. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my great story. I, my story yeah, about you... Quake is really bizarre. I, um, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, when I was 15 or 14, something around there, 15, let's say, um, 
through luck of the draw, my uncle's best friend was starting an ISP way up north uh, in the Northwest Territories. And he got me a summer job um, at this ISP, which was, you know, mind-blowing to me. The, the idea of, well, I had already worked for several years as a kid uh, doing all these, I think I mentioned one episode that I got to be a, a stock boy at a grocery store, which is the greatest thing on earth. Um, this year, I that year, I got to work at an ISP, helping to build this ISP up into a place where you could dial in and use the Internet. Um, now, the thing was, uh, we had um, this try not to get too much into techno mumbo-jumbo, but we had a, a magical device called the Livingston Portmaster, um, which to this, no one today would even give a shit about this, but this was like a $10,000 device in those days. And its only job was to um, accept um, TCP IP connections and then properly route them via serial cable to the right computer. Um, so it would check... Neato. Yeah, it was, it was really, really ancient stuff, because there was no such thing as a router that was capable of uh, routing stuff properly. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, uh, it would, so it would accept a TCP connection on a specific port, so port 6000 is incoming, and it says, well, I know port 6000, that's supposed to be going to this computer, and it would literally send that data over a serial cable to that physical computer sitting on this huge rack. Um, and one of the things my boss did, the first thing he did like when this comp- company was off the ground was he set up a Quake server, like a, a specific, I think it was a Pentium 133 or something like that. Um, or no, I guess it would be a 486 at the time. It was like a high-end 486, like a DX4100, um, mm-hmm. which was dedicated to only playing Quake. And this thing was... Oh, yeah, there was like a dedicated server that's application right. executable. Exactly. It was, it was a specifically ran dedicated server for Quake, which was brand new at the time. And mm. so this is, this, this is going to make me sound like the biggest jerk on earth. Um, I would sit in the office, you know, from finish work at 5 o'clock, go eat, go eat supper, and then I'd run back to the office, and I would be there till 2 in the morning every single day for that entire summer because I would have a ping time of around 5 milliseconds. Uh, mm-hmm. To this Livingston box, <laughs> and, uh-huh. and our, our customers, our customers uh, lived about four hours away because this is way up north. There are no such thing as <laughs> telephone lines up north. They actually use microwave towers to transmit data. Oh wow, those must be so slow. They're unbelievably slow, and <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah, the ping times were like starting at two fifty, going up to five hundred. Uh, Whoa. so I remember the last game I ever played was against this, this kid I went to high school with and it's like, my character has like 230 kills and he's got like three <laughs> and I think his three, <laughs> three kills are me auto, auto killing myself because I fell into the lava by accident. Uh, and it was just, you've just reminded me of an acronym that I, that I only remember this a very second, which was the LPB. What? Are you familiar with the LPB? No. Oh, the LPB is the low ping bastard, the one who is hosting the game, who has no ping, while the other people have to deal with the, the third of a second latency. <laughs> that would be me in 1995. Wow. <laughs> that would be you. That's quite a privilege to have such a leg up on your competition. That's very cool. It was terrible. You think I'd get bored of this, but I literally just sat there blasting people for two months. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, that's living. Yeah, that's a ter- what a terrible guy. So yeah, that was my experience of Quake. Um, I want to bring up one game that we mentioned last episode, 
this goes back a little bit back into the DOS days. Did you ever hear of a game called Stunts? Oh, yeah. Oh, the, man. The uh, arcade ports? Yeah. It was basically a straight-up rip-off of um, hard driving for the arcade. And, mm -hmm. oh, man. Well, there was a there was an arcade game called Stunts as well. I think it was a sequel. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, that awesome, like, vector yeah, art, exactly. uh first-person driving game. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had, like, humongous in-car uh, in cabinet sort of uh, arcade games of stunts and hard driving. Yeah, I owned, I, at some point in my life, I actually owned the sit-down cabinet of uh, Race Driving, which is a sequel to Hard Driving. Um, oh, that's amazing. What a great cabinet. It taught me how to, play, how to drive um, uh, stick shift, which is kind of cool. <laughs> that is super cool. Yeah. Yeah, I learned how to park a truck backwards by playing Euro Truck Simulator, by the way. <laughs> That's a pretty marketable skill. I'm impressed. I know. <laughs> I practiced for so long. <laughs> Virtually. Yeah, so Stunts was this game that, you know, for anybody who hasn't played it or isn't familiar with the genre, it's a basic straight-up driving simulator, except what they've added are, like, loop-to-loops, and your car has amazing exaggerated physics, so you can jump over, like, these huge uh, bridge-out kind of spots. Um, you can, you, your car can do a 100-foot jump if you go fast enough, that kind of thing. And multiplayer for that was just amazing. I have the best memories of sitting down with a couple of friends of mine, putting in a Nine Inch Nails CD, and just, like, playing the crap out of that game, creating our own maps. Uh, just, just, it had this amazing instant replay mode where you could watch your car explode in this fiery crash, which is always the funniest thing on Earth. <laughs> oh, man, stunts was so good. Oh, that's right. And from the first person, it would just show your windshield. Exactly. Breaking. And then, and then they would show you like an outer car view of your like little indie car smashing into a wall at 300 kilometers an hour, which was just the funniest. Oh yeah, seen. and it would just like superimpose this like uh, dotted circle, like or dotted red circle over you, and yeah. that was like the the explosion. Exactly. <laughs> oh, this is totally burned into my mind. Although, despite these really cheesy descriptions, this was like a a strangely beautiful. Game oh yeah, with such simple polygons, but it very, very like in, a very good sense of presence. Exactly, in this game being submersed on this track. Yeah, the polygons were drawn really well, and there were just a lot of them. I remember the detail was very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, so you played this one multiplayer? Yeah. Well, we what we did was we there there was actually no multiplayer mode for this. Um, for anybody listening from Europe, it was called 4D Sports Driving um, in Europe, if I remember correctly. Oh. Yeah, we got it locally as stunts. Um, it didn't have a multiplayer mode, but what we would do is basically just like play at hot seat and just take turns because it was so much fun just like just trying to outdo each other with these ridiculous jumps and stuff like that. Ah, I, I have such great memories of that game. <laughs> and um, related to that is a funny story about hard driving, which is the original arcade game which these games kind of attempted to pull off. Um, hard driving and its sequel, race driving, me and my best friend pumped. I don't know, 50, 100 bucks into that game over 10 years at the local uh, Cineplex. And one day, I, I this is going to blow your mind, man. Have you, do you know the idea of, like, um, push-starting a car? Yeah. Okay. So in this game, in hard driving, you actually have a stick shift and a clutch and gas and brake and a steering wheel, which is, you know, pretty impressive. It's got force feedback for anybody who remembers force feedback games. It has the first game to ever feature force feedback, and it's a really strong force feedback. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, it really fought you. Yeah, exactly, and you, you, your car would literally feel like it's skidding and getting out of control. But the one thing mm. we discovered after playing this game for 15 years, the one thing we discovered was it also had a key for the ignition, which is super cool. Uh, you actually had to start mm -hmm. your car up. Um, 
if you parked on a hill, put your car into first gear, shut off the engine, and then let it roll down the hill for about 50 feet and pop the clutch, it would actually kick the engine over and start the car up. Whoa. I know. Like that. <laughs> that's such unnecessary detail. Boy, that's neat. I know. And I think, <laughs> as far as I know, I'm the first person on earth to discover this. And I was just like, I just remember we both <laughs> both looked at each other. We were like, okay, I have to buy this game. So, <laughs> so I think it was a year later, I actually called the arcade distributor that owned this game at the Cineplex and I bought it from them. Um, and got, wow. yeah, and then it unfortunately rotted in my mom's garage for the next 10 years, but that's a long story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's super cool. <laughs> so, uh, any other games on your list? Are you moving out, moving into the windows era? Okay. We'll tell you what, how many games do you have left on your list? I have, I have like seven or eight games left on my list. Oh, how man. about you? I have way too many. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think we should call it a day and uh, yeah. go for a part two? Yeah, give our give our listeners a chance to uh, chime in maybe with their experiences of multiplayer. And I'm sure we've missed some. Um, um, I can give you a bit of a hint um, coming up on for next week. Um, mm-hmm. I have to talk about Micro Machines for DOS. Um, oh, yeah. I can't believe I forgot that I know. one. That's a brilliant multiplayer I game. remembered when you started talking about um, the, the kart racing game, I was like, oh, man, Micro Machines is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Codemasters, great developer. Yeah, Codemasters is fantastic, and they went on to make some incredible games. Um, mm-hmm. I can't wait to talk about MechWarrior 2 and NetMech, um, because that was a big deal for me. Uh-huh. I've, got a, I've got a pretty funny story about this game called 688 Attack Sub, and it also applies to, oh, yeah. <laughs> also applies to Falcon AT. Um, it's basically Chris attempting to connect via modem to another player but I was 10 years old at the time, and I didn't know what a modem was. So it was based, well, I won't ruin the story, um, but it's very, very embarrassing. <laughs> cool. All right, what have I got? Oh, I forgot an, an early one. Good, I have an early one to share next week as well. I've got, um, oh, so you, you had mentioned, by the way, giving people an opportunity to call in. I feel very badly that we didn't get to talk about the Imagination Network, which I know oh, is a topic right. that's very important to you. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I'd love to hear your take on it and uh, about the uh, blog post that you had left and all the amazing uh, comments that it garnered over the years. Yeah, I can't, um, I can't wait. Uh, we'll have to definitely get to that. Mm-hmm. Well, Francisco Gonzalez had contributed a terrific couple of stories, one about Imagination Network and one about um, The Realm. Oh, you're kidding. So, yeah, I'll, I'll have to share those with you. They're really great stories, and they uh, they mirror um, some stories that I have as well. Oh, so that's I'll be great. talking about... Um, I'll be talking about Gazillionaire, oh, Diablo, cool. Dungeon Siege, Guild Wars, their Second Life, and M Player, oh, and whatever else I can think awesome. of. Awesome, and I'm going to add to that Heroes of Might and Magic 2, Diablo 1, because we've got to talk about duping, and mm-hmm. X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, <laughs> Dwango, Game Spy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we can cover that in one more episode. Maybe it'll be two. <laughs> this is a much more fun topic than I had even anticipated. Me too, so. fantastic. We'll we'll keep the ball rolling, and hopefully we can squeeze in our very good friend Francisco Gonzalez to join us, if not next week, then very soon, uh, to talk about uh, something else. Most definitely, yeah. Well, maybe we'll pull off that that fabled Roberta Williams episode that everyone's been waiting for. Mm-hmm. All right. So until then, folks, thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, We very much encourage you, as always, to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear about whatever experiences you have with early multiplayer games, whether it's on PC or console or Apple or whatever platform you wish. Just uh, any formative, uh, interesting 
memories that you have of your very first multiplayer experiences. So you can reach us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com. You can get us by email at squarefm at demodulated.com. We're on Twitter at, at squarewavesfm. And uh, I don't know whether anyone has called it yet. Oh, Ben Chandler said that he had called it, I believe. Yeah. Or telling it BBS at squarewaves.zap2.org. And at long last, thank you again, Mr. Trolls, for recommending that we stick these uh, internet links on our internet website. I guess it belonged there all along, and at long last, there it is. All right. It's been uh, a pleasure, as always, of course, to speak with you, Chris. Thanks a lot for uh, chatting with me today about this great topic. All right. Thanks a lot, Brian. I can't wait for next week. And hopefully next week it's going to be either our good friend Francisco or we're going to do part two of multiplayer. Either way, um, anybody, if, if you want to be a part of the show, we'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks a bunch, everybody. Have a good one. So long. Bye now.